Onyx Hunt is our go-to solution for anything mapping related, whether we're at the house or in the field, whether we're using the tracking feature in order to kind of figure out exactly where we're going in and out of the woods, to also implementing the new cell camera feature where you can actually link your different cell cameras that you may have from different brands and be able to get all those photos sent directly through the Onyx app where you can actually see them on your maps and be able to go through all your photos right there in one place. You can use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout and save 20% on your Onyx Onyx membership. Onyx has been extremely helpful for us the last six years, and I'm sure it'll be helpful for you. So know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know the drill. Good optics are a must, whether you're running a red dot sight on your turkey gun or you're running some binos this turkey season, or if you're shopping for a new rifle scope. Vortex Optics needs to be the first place you look. They got something for everybody, whether you're wanting to get some entry-level glass or if you're wanting top-of-the-line glass and really good stuff, they got that too. They also have an unbeatable VIP warranty. If something happens to your Vortex Optic, you can send it in. They will fix it or replace it. Best warranty in the business, bar none. Head on over to MidwayUSA.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN to get a discount on your order of any Vortex product. Again, that's MidwayUSA.com. Go use that promo code SOUTHERN. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the show. Meadow Creek Mounts is your go-to mounting option for red dots on your turkey shotgun. And one of my favorite features about this mount is you don't have to drill and tap your shotgun in order to mount a red dot onto your shotgun. I personally have used this mount the last two seasons and it's worked extremely well for me. One thing I personally like about it is because it's so low onto the barrel when it mounts to the rib of your shotgun, it allows for a very natural head positioning when shouldering your gun. Also an advantage of using a red dot compared to maybe just a traditional bead on your shotgun is you get a much more clear view of the turkey and you're able to kind of see what else is around there and making sure you're perfectly on that bird. Now if you're interested in giving Meadow Creek Mounts a try you can go over to the website MeadowCreekMounts.com and use the code SOUTHERN at checkout to be able to save 10% on your order. Now I'm a southern child. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. All you uh, Appalachian Mountain hunters, we've got a real treat for you. But even if you don't live in the Appalachian Mountains and don't hunt there, I think you're going to get a lot out of this because we're about to dive deep into what it takes persistence-wise and discipline-wise to kill a big deer. Uh, today, on the phone, we have Mr. Jim Forbes. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm I'm great. Good. Well, Jim, we're excited to have you on. Uh, again, I, I talked to you last week, shot the breeze with you about what makes you successful, and it was really interesting. Um, this is an episode that uh, kind of came to um, you know, being possible because Devin Duncan had highly recommended you, uh, to us over the last few months. And finally, about two months ago, he's like, you got to get, you got to get Jim on. <laughs> he didn't give us a choice. <laughs> so, uh, that's, that's why I had to reach out to you and, um, and see what makes you so successful because guys like yourself are, you know, individuals that not only, you know, me and Andrew are interested in talking to just because you have, you know, a lot of experience, uh, but not only just a lot of experience, but you've killed a lot of really good deer, a lot of really big deer. Um, and, uh, you know, being from the state of Virginia that you are, um, you know, you kind of go hand in hand with some other guys we've talked to up there that are just, you know, some big deer killers and, you know, really good woodsmen. So hopefully uh, today we can kind of break some of that stuff down and really show people, uh, you know, what you, you do to be successful on a yearly basis. Um, 
But Jim, to kind of jump into everything, what is kind of your story, your upbringing into whitetail hunting? Because uh, I, I, you've told me before, it's a very interesting story, and I think listeners will really kind of enjoy that before we dive deep on the tactics. Well, Jacob, um, my brother and I, when we were young, moved here from to Virginia from the state of Pennsylvania, and you had to be 12 years old to hunt. When my brother turned 12, uh, we started, you know, you got to take brother hunting, and I was nine, couldn't really hunt, but I insisted that I go along, and sure enough, I did. My dad killed a pretty nice buck, and as they say, the rest is history, so then we moved to Virginia, and... My dad really wasn't a, a, a hunter, a deer hunter. He, his idea was to go out and find the first trails that he, you know, and we would sit there the whole season. There was no scouting or anything like that. He just walked in the woods a ways and, and you sat there all season. So we didn't, weren't really successful. Um, but, you know, over time, I really loved being outdoors. And back in the day, there was no, uh, North American whitetail. There was no hunting shows. It was like field and stream, outdoor life. And I read at school in the library, read those magazines and learned some basics. And then, you know, there's a lot of public land in uh, this Western Virginia, a lot of national forest. Started spending as much time as possible and, you know, started seeing the rub, seeing the scrape you know, spending time outdoors and, you know, slowly I built basic skills to see deer and, you know, start killing some small young bucks and then just gradually, you know, tried to increase my goals along the way. And, 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 you know, I just, I just love it. And still now, even though I'm, you know, in my sixties, I still spend a lot, all of November if possible out in the woods. Well, excellent. Well, I, I got to ask something, which, you know, you were talking about back in school, going to the library and reading, you know, some of the magazines that brought back memories of me doing the exact same thing. Our, our school library, we had, um, uh, it was Outdoor Life, Field, the Field and Stream magazine. And there was another one. I can't remember which one it was, but I would go in uh, like on like my lunch break or something. I'd eat lunch real quick and run in there and start reading articles, um, you know, between classes um, or, you know, borrowing or checking out that mag one of those magazines to go read different tactics um because my upbringing is very similar to yours jim uh, which is you know really interesting and uh, it's kind of cool to see your progression as a whitetail hunter going from you know being self-taught to you know now you know being killing a lot of really good deer a lot of really big deer great representation of what you know your area can provide uh, and those magazines i remember growing up and reading those and how I thought these tactics were so cool and crazy, but they're all, uh, you know, Midwestern base and it never, I could never really figure them out for the Southeast. Did you realize, did you see anything like that as well? Were you recently in the magazine and go try it out and maybe it just, it didn't really click for you? Yeah. Along the way, you know, you try, they talk a lot about using scents and hunting over scrapes and that sort of thing. And, you know, rattling antlers, you know, I've, I've never rattled up a buck. I've tried it. You know, I've never, I've had some success with grunting, uh, but I've seen deer run the other way too when you grunted at them. So, you know, it never seems like it really is like they describe it in the magazine. That's for sure. 
Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. That's probably – I remember reading articles about calling and going out trying it and scaring the crap out of some deer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I, I, you know, I just about yeah. killed a big buck that way one time, but it, there was two big bucks, and the, it was obvious they were almost by me, and they were down in the more of a thicket, and they had to be closer because it was muzzleloader, and at the time there was no scopes allowed. Uh, last, you know – resort i pulled out the grunt call and i grunted and there was two mature bucks but one of them was really big well the smaller one came running up to me the other one just kept going the one that i wanted to shoot so you know the other one he never even acknowledged that that i you know did the grunt so unfortunately i didn't end up getting either one of them well, Jim, let's let's lay a little more groundwork for everybody so they can kind of get a better idea of, um, you know, kind of the region of the country that you hunt in and also kind of the habitat type. Um, you're from Virginia, but, you know, I know you have told me you hunted both public and private land and still do. Um, but, you know, give us a little idea of, you know, the areas that you hunt in the state of Virginia. What is the terrain like and kind of like what are the deer numbers like as well in those areas? Well, you know, the terrain is, is rough mountain. It can be two to four thousand feet, pretty close to four thousand feet, you know. And it's steep ridges, laurel thickets, rhododendron thickets. In some instances, you try to get, you know, most people try to get away from the, you know, the roads and stuff. So it's a lot of hiking and knowing the land. So it's it's very difficult terrain to hunt in. The deer numbers are not high. It's not like going to a, hunting over a cornfield or food plot or anything like that there's nothing like that and on the public land in virginia there is some places that do, do have old fields but there's nothing in them and you know that's where other people tend to go i tend to get in the roughest terrain that is possible so that you know you're gonna you're not gonna see a lot but you know the potential is there that you can find a mature buck very nice. So I'm glad you kind of laid that groundwork for us. Jim, let me ask, um, when did, as you were kind of coming into becoming a little bit more successful whitetail hunter, when did it finally click for you that you kind of found your niche or your groove to how you could target and find and kill these mature bucks? Thanks for asking that question because you know, I can tell you I hunted in the 80s, the 1980s, Seems like a real long time ago, and it is. Um, but I, I was very successful at killing one-year-old bucks. So, but you know, I just I would hunt over sign, rubs and scrapes and things, and you know, there was always usually some big rubs there too. But really, pretty much all I saw was small bucks. So I realized in the late '80s, I said I've got to start doing something different. Because I'm not being successful. I'm not seeing big bucks. So, and actually, it was 1990. I can tell you that it's the year that I changed everything I did. I started hunting way off the road. I started hunting. I didn't even think about a small buck. I, I started, you know, thinking, well, you know, what do I got to do? What I've got to start hunting terrain features, bought a GPS. I started hunting thicker places, you know, started letting deer go. And, you know, that's when I started building my skills 
and I thought I knew a lot then, but I, as it goes on, I realized how little I still didn't, I didn't know about killing big bucks. You know, I started killing some because I was getting in more of the right places, but I still didn't really get down to having the skill. I mean, I still learn something every year. I still, you know, learn more and more and put it together more as I get older and, you know, look back on particular deer situations and just having more things to look back on, more deer kills, you start realizing, you know, there was a reason for that. So, so Jim, uh, before we started recording, you were talking about uh, basically keeping a database of all the, all the deer that you've killed and kind of using that information to snowball, you know, what you know into, into more deer. So you're using, you know, the past experiences you've had to, to kill more in the future. So can you dive into that a little bit and kind of what that process is like? Yeah, um, I, you know, at some point, and it was probably around the, the right around that 1990, I started saying, well, I've killed some deer, and I want to kind of get some information to see if I can find patterns here of, you know, why. I just wanted to keep the information anyway of, you know, like the date, the, the day of the week and county and, and all that, how many points and whether it was public or, or private. I do all mountain hunting, but some of it's private, some of it's actually like national forest, public land. And then, you know, the estimated age of the deer and the weather, like the temperature. And I think one of the really important things is the wind direction. And, and I've personally killed a lot of deer big bucks when there was a northwest or north wind and which i think that you know kind of a a big deal because there's a reason for that you know i've tried to think of what those re you know why why is that i think part of it's because the temperature might be a little cooler when there's a north or northwest wind that that kind of equates to me is a cold front coming through you get that when you know that cold front comes through and then all of a sudden the wind tor- turns to the north northwest uh, i've killed a lot of nice bucks when it was 30 mile an hour wind a lot of people don't like to hunt then and they'll say well i'm not going to hunt tomorrow because it's a northwest wind and it's you know 35 miles an hour i actually try to make sure that i'm in the woods when that happens because you know spreadsheets told me this over time so and you know another thing that i've done that i think is helpful with my um database is i've taken and broken down november into five day increments 11 1 11 5 11 6 11 10 and then i plugged in the dates that i've killed more mature bucks and to see when when i think the most successful time is um, probably not surprising, 11-11 to 11-15 is my second most successful time period. And, you know, that most people tell you around here, you know, in, in a northern state, mid-Atlantic state, that mid-November is the peak of the rut. When it kind of bears that out, that, you know, the deer, the bucks are moving during that time period. But one of the surprising things that I've learned is, for me, one of 
my my most successful time is from eleven twenty six to the end of the season twelve. End of, sometimes our season doesn't end till the first couple of days into December, and I've killed more mature bucks then than at any other time period. And you know what I've kind of gleaned from that is that you know there yes there's less bucks available then because some of them have been killed, but the ones that are still still you know alive are sticking more to the thicket. They're sneaking around. There's probably less hunting pressure towards the end of the season because, you know, we start right around the first of the month and with muzzleloader season, hunting pressure's high, but towards the end of the season, people run out of, you know, time off and, you know, they burn out on it a little bit. And I, right up till recently, you know, I've been able to continue to kill bucks during that time period. And, you know, I got to ask. Jim, do you uh do you take in uh like buck encounters with that data set, or is it strictly only deer that you've killed? It's it's only deer that I've killed. Um, it, that you know, it's something I've thought about because I tend to some years I've let twenty five bucks go. It's possible, you know. I haven't. It's not been that way as much recently. I feel like the deer population might be in the mountains, might be a little bit down. I think it is down some, uh, you know, so I don't maybe not let as many go. So, I mean, that is something I have thought about and not done. I did keep a spreadsheet for a while of that back, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And it was interesting. And one of the points that, you know, it, that came out was, you know, I, I would spend around 200 hours a year between bow season and all the way to the end of late muzzleloading season in a tree or, you know, in the woods on a stand. And normally it would take somewhere around 100 hours of being on a stand to see a shooter buck. That's, you know, then I did that for several years and I, I kind of stopped doing that. I wish I hadn't, but it was helpful and, you know, that's the information that I gleaned out of it. So. Go over a little bit more for us about that spreadsheet that you've made, uh, and you've kind of gone over like the, the the different data points that you kind of have with that spreadsheet, and you actually sent that over to us so I could kind of get an idea of what you're talking about. Uh, and we'll post that probably later on this week so people can, can see a, a visual representation of what we're talking about. Um, but what how does that dictate exactly how you hunt? I mean, you talked about like there's certain there's a certain time frame where you've been more successful than others, but would you break it down by those five day increments of kind of uh, you know rough estimate of kind of where you're most successful at, so you kind of can show you know if you are taking time off work or whatever, you know you want to be out in the woods during these four or five day periods. Yeah, I mean, I I think what you're asking is our season in Virginia and in a lot of states now there's the seasons are longer because you have a, like a muzzle loading season or sometimes it's just bow that runs in to november and you know i think earlier in the month is the deer are not really rutting yet and then it starts picking up that week of 11 6 to 11 10 i've killed five mature bucks in that time period and then from 11 11 11 15 I've killed 10, so it doubled 
just in one week period. So, I mean, you know, that tells me I need to definitely be in the woods that, that week. And then, you know, from 11, 16 to 1120, I've killed six. From 1121 to 1125, I've killed six. So that's, you know, your standard rifle season around here. And, you know, I've been pretty successful there, been consistent. And then from 1126 to 12-2, I've killed 11 bucks that I would consider, you know, more mature bucks. To me, that tells me I need to be in the woods any time in November that you can, but after the first week probably. And, you know, that's how I um, kind of schedule my vacation. The first week of muzzleloader here, I might take a day or two, and then... Then I try to take the second week of muzzleloader and the two weeks of gun, which will take you to the end of November. And I try to be, you know, that drives me to know that I've got a pretty good chance any of those times in the woods. Jim, one thing I'm wondering about is uh, with all the the data that you've been keeping track of over the years, is there a certain uh, wind or or really just weather pattern or moon phase or anything like that in general that seems to get deer on their feet just in general it doesn't have to be necessarily like a like a mature buck but is there just anything that that really seems to get deer moving consistently i I definitely think a cold front coming through once that cold front has actually hit this you know where i'm hunting from that point on i think the deer are definitely going to get up and start moving. The temperature's normally going to drop. Your wind's going to come up, but during November, now I haven't had any luck at this during October, but during November, when that wind's out of the northwest, uh, I, I, I think people should, you know, be thinking, you know, where you're at during the month, is it past the peak or is it before the peak? And, you know, should plan their strategy accordingly to that you know if if it's before the peak you know 11 6 to 11 15 i'm probably gonna think well them bucks are gonna be out on the does chasing the does trying to find a doe they're gonna be you know on that walk that you know i've seen so many times in the woods of just they're just they're not feeding they're just like they're going somewhere in a hurry or you know chasing a doe and then i think towards once you get past that middle of the month then i think you gotta hunt a little bit different you gotta get into those thickets that if you see a buck is a good chance he's gonna be by himself he's just gonna be moving around looking and he's not going to be on that mission part, especially the last 10 days in November. He's going to be really sneaking around, walking around. And that's that's kind of the way I look at it. Jim, let's do this. Let's hit on the strategy and how it changes for you come the 1st of November to the end of the month going into the December. What is your strategy if you were going to hunt in, in earlier in the month compared to the middle of the month compared to the end of the month, what does your strategy look like? And maybe break down some hunts for us so we can kind of get some examples of kind of what you're focusing on at the different times of the rut. Well, you know, earlier in the rut, I think you can focus a little bit more on, you know, what are where are those deer, where are the does 
eating at? What are they eating? You know, you, you don't have food plot. But they could be going, you're in the mountains, but in some, a lot of places, and I look for places like this, there could be fields a mile or two away. You can get down closer maybe to that because that's where your does are going to be. It's all about food for them. Or where are the best oak places if their acorns are hitting really good? Where are they going to be? And, and a lot of people don't realize, everybody knows, I think, that deer like white oaks better than, than any other kind of oak. But by November, around here, there's really no white oaks left. It's red oak. And that's what I concentrate on. Where are the red oaks at? Where are they going? Where, you know, are they down in the hollows? You know, where did they hit? You know, because you've got different different levels, basically. You know, are they up high? Are they down low? Are they in between? And you're wanting to set up, you know, earlier in the month, I think, you know, a little bit closer to the food. Whereas later on in the month, I, you know, I think, again, the bucks that are left, they've probably, you know, realize that there's people in the woods, they've smelled them, they've encountered them, and they're going to be, you know, coming up out of those places early. They still might be sneaking around, but my experience is that they're sneaking around in the thickets. And so you have to, you know, it's not as much about food there, you know, I, I don't see bucks feeding along, you know. It's more about getting in the cover and looking for does, still looking for does. I think they just instinctively want to move around during November. So does that answer your question? Yeah, Jim, that was perfect. I mean, that's that's kind of where I wanted to go with it is it sounds like you're hunting more food sources early on in November, but kind of once the pressure gets up, then you're transitioning much more to that real thick cover that that buck's going to feel secure in, that he can still move around, he can check those, but he's doing it in much more secure cover and not necessarily coming out into the quote-unquote pretty woods where you might have, you know, those, uh, those oak flats or just, you know, the sides of the mountain that has more red oaks on them. Uh, is that kind of what you're seeing, kind of what you're doing? Yes, it is exactly. Now, you know, some years there's no acorns. We've encountered that quite a bit in the last couple years ago. And I, I hunted in the mountains and there was no acorns at all. And it was, you know, it was, you would drive to your hunting area or drive home and you'd see just herds of does. I come home in the afternoon, you know, like mid one, two o'clock and there'd be does standing in fields everywhere. And, you know, my cameras told me that they're, the does weren't coming up into the mountains. You know, there I'm getting very few doe pictures, but I was getting some buck pictures, but it was still difficult. You, I wasn't seeing bucks like I usually see, even though I had daylight pictures of them. I think, you know, I just kind of said, well, you know, why is that? And my my thought on it is they were coming. They knew the does were down in the field, and they were coming straight up into the woods and laying down. They just they didn't, weren't expending any energy, weren't looking like they normally would prowl around looking for does and they just it was up and down you know straight i call it north south they going south to the field 
coming north to bed. And, you know, when there's a lot of acorns in the woods, I feel like there's a lot more what I call north or east-west movement where some of those deer never come down the field. They don't need to. They got food in the woods, red oak acorns, and they just, you know, their movement's more to the hollows or wherever the, the best, you know, wherever your scouting has showed you where the best, you know, acorns are, where, the, where they're falling at. All right, Jim, we get we got to hit on this. I want to I hit on two different scenarios that we're going to go right down the rabbit hole in scouting, okay? But before we do that, I want to ask you, in a year, whether you're hunting public or private land, because I know you got you, you do both, uh, even even though you hunt some public or private land, that sounds about as high pressure as most public, if not more so. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit later on as well. But in a year where there is a lot of acorns on the ground, what is your strategy at that time? And then I want to, then once you answer that, I want to go into years without acorns. But let's hit on a year where maybe there's a bumper crop of acorns. What is your strategy that time? Well, I'm going to hunt. I'm still going to go. Uh, I'm going to go to where I've scouted, and I feel like the best spots are as far as you know. I do use terrain features, but there's a lot of features. You know, I'm saying there's there's you know, you hear saddles and, you know, points, but, you know, there's a lot more to that. You know, a lot of finger ridges in these mountains out here that that are, could be a mile long. You know, I tend to like where what I call intersection stands or spoke stands where you go way up in there above to where the main mountain where the finger ridge hits the main mountain and there might be what I call, you know, ridges, side ridges coming in all through there. And I feel like that increases your chances, your odds, because all those, the deer like to go, you know, up on the main mountain a lot of times because there's usually a lot of thick stuff in there between the top and where the finger ridges start. And if they've gone down into those flats, and, you know, down into the big hollows where the pretty oak trees are, they're going to transition back up out of there. I'm going to look for that. I'm going to look for the the the, the um, thick side of the ridge where I'm going to set up, whether I'm in a tree stand or on the ground, which I'm transitioning more on the ground now because, you know, hard to get in the tree stand. But where I can see down into the the laurel thickets, but, you know, there might be a dozen ridges that come into that. I call that, you know, a spoke stand where all those ridges come in and, you know, if they're trying, if they could come up any ridge and you're getting above them and, you know, if they coming up in there to lay down up on that, you know, the main mountain part, you know, that's what I'm going to do. The spur ridges and everything that you're talking about, just to like, make sure I'm seeing this right in my head. It almost sounds like a bowl, like like how when with a bowl you have a bunch of uh, drainages leading down and meeting and you've got a bowl. It, it sounds like that if you like turned it inside out where it's on top of the ridge rather than in the bottom. Like, am I reading that right? I, I think you are, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, if a deer's going north and south, he's they could come up any, you know, if there's acorns everywhere, they might not feed in the same place every day. 
or every night, they're going to go down, you know, wherever. And, you know, it's been my experience from scouting. I know we haven't got to that point yet, but a big buck, he may not go the same way every year. He's got those, you know, maybe down this drainage and down another drainage. He's, you know, if he's a mature, more dominant buck, he's probably going to go wherever he wants to go. And, you know, I just feel like it increases your odds to look for that. You know, saddles are good, too. I, I, I hunt saddles some, too. I look, you know, along the it, – it, if you're hunting on the ground, if you, if you can get to the edge of that laurel thicket or can see down into that laurel thicket, I think, that in, you know, that's where you want to be. And, you know, coming up out of the pretty woods, because that's where the food is. You get up in the rougher stuff around here, and you're going to be looking more at laurel, chestnut oaks, which are long gone by the time deer season comes in. And, you know, you're not going to have the pretty trees that you do down in the, the big hollows and stuff. You're looking more into the rougher, thicker stuff, and it's not really as where you're going to probably find your main food sources. All right. So, Jim, I want to go back to the other scenario. So, we kind of just covered what you would do in a year that has, you know, that's a bumper crop of acorns. And we're about to get into scouting in just a second. Before we do, what is the situation if there is not a great acorn crop? Maybe y'all had a, a, a late frost in the spring that, you know, uh, just kind of kept the oaks from possibly uh, really producing heavy. You know, in a year where acorns are very limited, what is then your tactic or, or what you're looking for at that time of the year in November? Um, again, if there's a limited acorn source up on the mountain. Well, you know, you got to think they're going to probably, they're, you're going to, if there's any possibility of the deer going to the fields and, you know, they could be two or three miles away. I've, I've literally killed bucks that had grass in them and there wasn't a field for, you know, two or three miles. They would go that far. I, I truly believe that. Maybe not all of them, but if they want to get the good food, then they're going to go to fields if it's all possible. So that's a north-south movement. You might want to hunt a little bit lower if you can on the mountain, you know, because they some deer might not be transitioning up. And then again, you get that first part of November. What are the does doing? They're probably not going to come up, you know, spend as much time way up on the mountain. I personally think a buck, a lot of bucks are going to go back up in, if they're going to go up in and bed like they normally do, they're going to go way up the mountain anyway. But I don't think does necessarily are going to be that way they're going to stick closer to the food sources so if you can do that you know they're going to browse too and they're going to you know i've killed deer and that's one of the things i do is i always when i'm field dressing the deer i always check the stomach to see what they're eating every single deer i've ever killed and i always do that because i want to verify what i think it is you know, was it acorns in there? Is it green stuff? Is it grass? You know, I've, I've seen them where they were eating mountain laurel, which, you know, doesn't sound too good for them. But So, you know, I think you're going to, your strategy is going to be to hunt, 
you got to figure out what the food source is and try to get a little closer to that if possible. So, so Jim, let me let me ask you this. We just went over both of those scenarios. Which one would you rather have to have to hunt? Would you rather have it be in a bumper crop of acorns, or would you want that to be the limiting resource for that season? Well, I I can. That's a great question, and I, and I can tell you, I'm I feel like I'm more successful, and I'd much rather have acorns in the woods because I can stay. I can go to so many different places in those mountains and feel like the deer are right there with me. So I feel like they're right around me. And, you know, the does are there too. And, you know, I think, you know, you, I just think it increases your odds of seeing a trophy buck because, you know, there's, there's a lot of variables if they happen to go great distances to, to get to food. So I'd much rather have that. Well, let me, let's jump into scouting now. You know, we've kind of beat around the bush on scouting, but what, let me ask, what times of the year do you put the most emphasis on scouting? Um, And just kind of what does a scouting look like on a yearly basis for you? I think that the best time to scout, the most ideal time to scout is in the winter time. You know, January through, uh, you know, end of March. And I truly believe that the way, the best way to scout is to go in the woods, wherever it is. And, um, you know, I, if you're going to hunt public land, I think you look more for places that are, you know, one thing like going in the wintertime, you can see where people have hunted in the, you know, during the season. They'll, they'll either be a tree stand or, They'll, you know, have scratched out a place next to a tree, that sort of thing, uh, where people have camped in National Forest, that sort of thing. And I try to stay away from that. You know, if I feel like that's a good entry point, then then that's probably not where you want to go. If you want to get away from the people, you want to go in some place where there's a ridge right there where you immediately have to climb a ridge. And, you know, that, that kind of, you know, separates people out that don't want to do that. So that's one thing. But if you go, I, this is something I've spent a lot of time doing in scouting in my, back in my prime, so to speak. And I would go into an area and I would try to cover every single ridge, every valley. It sometimes would take me, you know, several trips to go do that to get a really good lay of the land you know what are the deer doing in here you know where are the best looking places to if you're going to hunt there and i would take a gps and i would save those places and then we would come back to you know if i would think about it for a while you know use your brain think about it and you know, what are the best spots you think are the best spots and why is that? And then, you know, eventually I would get with my buddies that hunted with me and we would take, you know, chain home stands in there and, you know, go in there. And I would usually, where I was thinking about putting that stand, I would still walk it again. Sometimes they would get mad at me, I think, because it would take me a couple hours decide for sure a hundred percent where i wanted to put that stand because you know it's just 
it's a lot of work to move on them stands. And so, you know, you go in, you try to learn the land as good as you can. You pick what you think, you know, and you try to think like a, you know, like a mature buck. What would you do if you were walking around in the woods trying to evade predators? You're, you're going to stick to the thickets. Uh, you know, you're going to use the topography of the land to move to where, you know, you're less likely to be seen. And then, you know, you use all those things and then you put your stand up in that, you know, area, you know, and I would try to pick several places in each, you know, area I would go in. I'm going to go into this mountain today. I would try to pick four or five places. One, you know, you might have a couple hunting buddies with you, so you got to try to pick places for everybody to have a good chance. And then, you know, you would save those on GPS. And then I would come hunt season, there would be no doubt. I, w- I wouldn't go anywhere else. I-, I mean, that's where the persistence piece of it comes in. You've decided, you've went in and you scouted and, and spent all this time scouting, and you feel like this is the best spot based on, you know, what you're looking at. So that's where you need to spend your time. And that's where, you know, you can't give up early. I can tell you story after story of going in there and not seeing anything. But if you believe that that's the best place in there, normally it is. You know, there's probably times that it isn't, but the majority of the time, if you put your time in and you've got the experience and you go in there and, you know, if you give put the time in, you're going to be successful. That's, I truly believe that. So, Jim, let's piece this apart a little bit more with the scouting. You, you mentioned early on about access, and, you know, it sounds like you're going to places that have harder access. You're not looking for that pretty spot that you can walk up a logging road kind of down a drainage or anything. You're looking for a place that, you know, instantly there's going to be some kind of obstacle that you have to overcome in order to get back to where that mature buck's probably living. Um, it, it, would you say that's accurate? Yes. So yes, anything you can do to kind of separate the folks that are going to, you know, not walk in as far, you know, that that's an advantage. You know, they're not putting down that scent in the woods, and you know, you can get away from other people that way. It's been it's worked for me. So maybe give us a couple more. Let's talk access first, okay? I really want to break down scouting because you're very, very knowledgeable on what you do to scout to make you successful, and you've told me that's a big part of kind of what you do. When you're scouting access, especially if maybe you go to some place that you're not super familiar with, say for some reason you know you were going to go to a different part of the national forest. What are a couple of things that you can kind of see whether you're scouting on the map or if you're driving around? that you're like, okay, this looks a little bit more difficult. This is probably a place I need to go check out and see if there's any bucks living on the backside of this mountain. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it starts with maps and, you know, that sort of thing where you kind of can look and see where the national, you can get national forest maps and, you know, maps of mountains. And you're going to look and you're going to, you know, that's your pre-work that you're going to do to, say, well, you know, this looks promising, you know, two miles from here, there's private land in the field, so that's probably a good thing to start with, and then you're right, you, you want to drive around in there and look for the places, and, you know, it, as you're scouting, too, 
you're going to look for the places. If you come across a bunch of where a bunch of people have scratched out places to hunt, you could probably mark that place off your list because it sounds like somebody's already beat you in there. And, you know, there's no sense in going in there and doing that. You're, you know, I've, I've had that happen to me, you know, that it looked great on the map and, you know, going in there, but then you get in there and you find out there's been a lot of people hunting in there. So, you know, I usually mark those places off. So, but not every place will be like that. But, you know, you know where people are going to tend to camp. They're going to look for flat spots where they can pull their vehicles in, put their campers in there. And, you know, you're going to see the, the logging roads that go back in their flat, a lot of them. And they go back in between, you know, a ridge on one side and a ridge on the other, go back in there a ways, and they can walk in there pretty easy. So I just try to tend to, to stay away from that sort of thing. I, I mean, I'm not against logging roads at all because logging roads are great. But, you know, if it's an access point, you, you probably will have competition at some point. All right, Jim, we've got to hit on maps now. Again, I, there's so much to this scouting that I really want to piece apart. What did you used to do back in the day when you start, first started hunting public land? Were you using maps much, or were you just driving around and just walking into spots? And then what has that transition been like with technology? How do you use maps today versus what you used to do? Okay, well, that's another great question. I I tell you, I went to the National Forest offices around here and got the maps for all those sections all in this side of the state, you know, from all over the place. You know, they're broken down by different, they, you know, got different names for them at the time. And I used that as, you know, study maps in the summertime. You know, this looks like a good place, you know. We, and then you, you go from there and, you know, go in there in the wintertime and scout that. So, and then now, I can tell you, I had a, a Magellan Sport Track with my first GPS, and that was a tool that was well beyond its time, and it was quite a few years ago. And, you know, I filled that thing up with waypoints. I, I, it only had so many, and... I literally filled it up and had to delete waypoints in there. And then you could bring it home and then you could hook it up to your computer and you could pull that map up of where you saved. And it was really neat. And, uh, thing quit acquiring satellites on me at some point and I had to go get another one. And I do have another one now and I still use it and it's got the maps on the GPS and, and, it's a nice GPS, and, you know, I firmly believe in that because going in and out of the woods in the dark is a skill in itself. If you're going to walk, you know, a couple miles back in the mountain in the pitch dark, you know, that you, you better know what you're doing because you can get turned around easy, and if you, you get off track a little bit, you can, you know, turn that GPS on, and it'll show you exactly, you know, the path because you – it's got the lines going back up in there, and I highly recommend GPSs because they're, you know, they have that where they'll show where you've been. And, but you know, I've, there's been times when it's been foggy after a storm or something, and, and everything looks different. And that's the most challenging 
time that I've run into trying to get in and out of the woods is when it's been real foggy and in the dark. What about map scouting uh, like today? Like, are you using Google Earth or Onyx or any of these apps to uh, pick out spots on the ground before you go into them? No, I don't. I haven't. I If I do get one, it's probably going to be the, the Onyx hunt thing because, you know, that shows borders and everything else. Um, I, I have seen people that had that, and it seems like a, a really neat tool. I've just kind of done it old school because that's the way I've, you know, kind of learned it. And, you know, I'm not as quite as adventurous now as I used to be because, you know, I'm kind of transitioning from being able to walk 10 miles a day to not being able to walk 10 miles a day. So, you know, I've kind of actually kind of reined some things in and have kind of hunted more more to the places that I know the best and and I feel like I have a good chance there and stuck with those places and not to say that I won't look at new places because actually I I have a new place this year that I'm going to be hunting and I have another place that I've this will be my third year in there and I it's actually my favorite setup and you know that would be train features along with the thick, a laurel thicket. And, I, I mean, I just feel like it's got big buck written all over it, even though I haven't killed one there yet. I just feel like I will. So, Jim, let's hit on a few other things that you're that you're focusing on when you're scouting. So you're talking about kind of using maps, driving around, finding that hard access points, and then kind of hiking in from there. What are a few things you're looking for when it comes to actual habitat that is going to tell you there's probably a big deer in the area that kind of gets you excited. Let's, you know, we'll hit on deer sign in just a second, but when it comes to habitat, what are things that you're looking for that really tells you, hey, this is a spot I need to come back to, I need to hang a stand, I need to come back and hunt this area? Well, I mean, you know, I think it's, you know, habitat is, is there fields within a mile or two or three miles? Is there, uh, uh, you know, do you have the oak? flats that have plenty of white oaks and red oaks you know that's a good thing to have especially the big red oaks and you know i in the laurel thickets i mean you know they're gonna uh, browse on a lot of different things and you know in those years that they don't have the best food but you know i'm going to concentrate on the oaks now, when it comes to, like, security cover, is that something you're also taking into consideration when you're going in there and how deer can use security cover along with terrain features to move around, stay hidden, but still be able to get to where they're trying to go? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's where your laurel and rhododendron comes in. I mean, yeah, that's where I want to be around. I'm not going to hunt in the open woods. Uh, I mean, I've heard people killing deer in the open woods, but, you know, I'm going to be on the edge of the thick or in the thick, the the laurel and the rhododendron. And it's hard to hunt in the, in the middle of it unless you're off the ground. So, you know, I do have some tree stands that, uh, that are in places like that. I described one a few minutes ago that I really have high hopes for. It's public land. Um, there historically on that mountain, there's been a lot of really big bucks killed 
and I feel like this is a really good setup, and the laurel thicket goes for a long ways, and it's along the edge of this kind of a flat, and then it goes down a side hill, and it's all thick. It's really thick, and you know, it's such, and, it, and then it kind of filters up to the main mountain, which is, you know I talk about. It it goes to that main mountain, and then you know they'll go up in there and and, and lay down. And you know I don't do as many main mountains now because of the you know physical limitations of somebody my age. But I can be really smart and walk uh, up into there and get to the edge of that. It's about a mile. And, you know, that's the kind of things I'm looking for. Is there a specific, when you're talking about going and finding the thicker cover, uh, which in your case is the Mount Laurel and the Rhododendron, where in our case it might be a pine thicket or something, uh, but when you're going and looking for that stuff, is there a certain size that that thicket has to be for you to think that this it's holding deer? Like, can it be an acre and hold a deer? Or do you need it to be like a very large thicket to hold the kind of deer that you're after? Well, I, you know, I think that probably depends on, you know, the overall woods. But, you know, obviously the longer and bigger, probably the better, you know, to some extent. But then, you know, it might become harder to hunt if you don't have some kind of a funnel coming in and out of it, you know, a terrain feature that, you know, why would they, what what would make them come out at a certain place? Because again, you know, if you're going into it, you got to be really careful because that's, you know, some of the deer could be bedding in there. So, you know, that's something you got to consider, you know, where are they coming in and out? And that's where your saddles and, you know, your draws coming out of a ridge might come into play and can, you know, can you see in there on it? Well, when that, you're, that's something else you have to consider too. So when you're talking about finding that spot where you're going to see them and where they're going to come out, uh, I mean, what does that look like? What, what in the thicket are you looking for that when you find it, you're like, I think that I will see this deer in this spot. Well, I think, you know, you're going to go in there and look for trails, you know, that you're going to, in the wintertime, you can go in there. If you dump something out, it's not going to be a big issue, I don't think. But, you know, you're going to go in there and look, you know, see what what's going on in there. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time in thickets like that trying to figure out, well, you know, why are they moving into the, you know, where are they coming from? Where are they going to, you know, that's, you know, are they going to come out at a certain spot because there's a oak flat down below that? You know, you're going to look for your trails pretty much, I think, in there. And, you know, that's where your your actual deer sign might come into play a little bit. The rubs and scrapes and things. So, Jim, let's go into deer sign while scouting. So we've talked about the thick cover, talked about food sources, talked about access points and how to get in and out of there. Let's talk about actual deer sign when you're scouting. What deer sign are you kind of focusing in on, if any of it, that are in this area? And what kind of sign is maybe getting you excited that tells you maybe there's the caliber of buck in there that you're trying to target? Well, big rubs is for sure the, the you know, obvious sign. And I'm talking about, I've seen rubs as big as the thigh of your leg more than one time and then that's what gets me really excited um the 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 one thing that i do hone in on for deer sign now 
that I'm looking for is a group of pine trees or a group of cedar trees that are kind of together, you know, in a little bunch that have rubs that are like this year's rubs and rubs from previous years. And if there's a scrape there, I think you've hit the kind of jackpot because I have a place like that right now and that I've found that it's cedar trees and it's, you know, like every year they come in there and they, they start rubbing those trees and there's a, usually a scrape there and it might not always be the same tree every year or, you know, it might be several trees. And I think, I think that they, the, the, it's like a group deal, a community rub or scrape. And they will come back to that year after year. And if you can find a place like that, it's really hard to find. But I have one like that now, and I, and I definitely would get really excited if I found a place like that. And it's, you know, it might not be a whole forest full, you know, that, that wouldn't be what you're looking for. It's in a, you know, a smaller setting where, you know, it might be a half an acre or something like that where you find it looks like they, you know, the bucks all know that that is there and they're going to come by there to kind of, you know, put their scent down. I think it's more of a buck thing than a doe thing that they, you know, come in there and they, they, you know, here, this is me. This is, this is who I am. So, and I've, you know, I tend to put cameras over that and I've had, I've gotten some really good pictures of like a buck's coming in there and making rubs and, you know, ain't small ones. So Jim, let's talk, let me ask you this. You're talking about finding that big buck sign, looking for big rubs, scrapes, areas that have rubs from previous years, kind of all in the same area. The, these areas that kind of get you excited, it's like this. Is this something that's inside the thick cover? Is it on the edge of the thick cover? Or is it just in the general area on the mountainside that's just, you know, within a couple hundred yards of this thick cover? I mean, what is it? And, and again, what does that get you excited? I mean, if it's way down in the bottom, uh, you know, way below a big, you know, privet thick, I mean, a uh, mountain laurel thicket, I almost said privet down here in <laughs> Alabama, uh, is that something that still gets you excited or does it need to be closer inside that thick cover? I think it needs to be, you know, in the woods. If it's like next to a big field or something, I wouldn't be as excited about that. But Not that I have. Uh, I don't have a place like that. But, you know, I have hunted places like that in the past and sat there until the cows come home and not seen anything because, you know, they come there and stage up. But, you know, once the people start getting in the woods, they, you know, don't come to the field till after dark kind of thing. Um, you know, I think that if you can find that anywhere in the mountain, you know, not right in the middle of where you think they're feeding, you know, in that thicket, on the edge of that thicket is where I, I think on the edge of the where it starts getting rough, if you can find that is what I would make me excited. I can tell you that. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Jim. Now, how does the wind, when you're scouting, how does the wind affect on future stand placements, which we're going to get into stand placements in just a little bit, but are you going in and you're thinking about the second you're in there scouting, 
for stand placements for that following season? Yes. I mean, that's that's what I go in there for, to find places to hunt. And, you know, I don't carry stands with me or anything like that. I want to I wanna do it in a in a, you know, logical manner. I want to go in and I want to scout it and save those places on my GPS. I want to think about it for a little while, maybe check some maps and then go back and, you know, you know, when I go back to put a stand up, you know, I'm probably going to take a buddy with me or two and, you know, I want to see what they think and I want to, you know, I want to walk out again and make sure. So it just, you know, that's just the way my process is. I'm sure there's other ways. And and there's one more thing that I would add to that Mm -hmm. is I want to make sure that I have a direct way to go into my stand and, uh, you know, and go out. I don't, I'm not the kind of person that's going to go in there and hang scent drippers and, you know, that sort of thing. I don't, my experience is that that's, you know, it could work, but I've never had it work, and I've had them, you know, smell where I've been. So I think it's important, you know, I see this a lot. And it just really, I just don't understand it. A person will walk up a ridge for a half a mile and then walk right up the top of the ridge and then clear out a spot or put a stand there and then turn around and look back down that ridge. To me, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, why would you walk up that ridge and put all that scent down? You, it, it, the, the, the bushes and laurels and, you know, the blueberry bushes and stuff are rubbing against your boots and, and against your pants. And then you're turning around and expecting a big buck to walk up through there. I, that is, that's illogical. So you're focusing so, on... Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but you're focusing on if in a situation like that, you're either side hilling around the top of the ridge or you're coming over the back side of the ridge, correct? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, you know, just based on what it's what you have, what it offers you, I think, you know, if, if you can come down the ridge or, you know, I like to come up the ridge next to it. Again, I talk about finger ridges a lot. Come up the next ridge over from it and then come straight across. And that's where your GPS and, you know, I use the, the tax to for, you know, where they're, where I'm going to cross, you know, turn to go across. If you come straight across and straight up to the stand or side hill on it, if you do, I do a lot more of that now because, you know, it's, I used to walk the ditches, to be honest with you, the drainage ditches. And it gets, you got into some really big messes, but you know, that you could break your leg really easy when you step in a hole in the dark. And, and I've kind of got away from that. And you, you know, you just got to use your brain a little bit there and, and figure out. I mean, that's something you should figure out with your scout and how you're going to get in there and, you know, how you're going to get a deer out too. That's important too. And, Jim, I actually I kind of messed up that question earlier. I didn't mean to talk about stand placement, but I was talking about when you're scouting, I meant to say when you're scouting, are you imagining what the wind direction is going to be like in November when you're coming back to hunt these areas and how you can get in cleanly, but also how the deer are going to be using that area and you can use the wind to your advantage, but also that deer might feel safe as well moving through that area? Here in the mountains, I'm, I'm going to say this is what I encountered it's kind of generally answering your question. Uh, 
you're going to see two winds most of the time. It's going to be some component of the south wind or some component of the north wind. And I've tended to hunt the north sides of mountains more than the south sides because they're thicker and the buck sometimes will come over that mountain. And so you, 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 it is a consideration that you want to do is wh- what do you think the wind's going to be? But I think, you know, my experience is over time, you don't see that many east winds. And it's, 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 there is some west winds. But, you know, you're going to you're gonna do that when you set it up. Where you set the stand up is you got to think about where's the wind going to be on a normal day. And you're going to have, you know, it's going to be out of the south more. It's going to be out of anything. So, you know, you got to take that in consideration where you, that comes into where your stand placement is. You're going to want to be in the high spot off the side, looking down the thicker side. So, did that answer your question? Oh, yeah, that, that was perfect. And, Jim, I was going to ask before we move on, because I want to get to stand placement and kind of how you do that, because I know you like to hunt or hang a lot of pre-hung sets uh, when you're using tree stands or just find areas you can hunt off the ground and kind of have those areas in mind. But before we move on to that, is there anything else that you kind of focus on while scouting that maybe we haven't covered that's an important part of kind of what you do? Again, you want to think like a deer as much as you can. And um, you, you will use your terrain features and and all that and getting in and getting out. So I, I think we've kind of covered that. Okay, perfect. I want to get more in terrain features, but I think it goes really hand-in-hand hand with stand placement, especially getting in areas that truly are kind of funneling the deer towards you uh, so you can get a, you know, a good shot in these woods. But let's talk about stand placement. When it comes about you coming back in and hanging stands, um, what are some of the things you're going to want to hang stands on, especially when you're kind of picturing you know, hunting November and the opportunities that you may have? Well, I'm definitely going to try not, I don't want to hang that stand, you know, where I think the deer are going to come right under it. You're going to want to be off the side, or even if you're on the ground, you want to be off to the side where you're going to not be in their line of sight. You want to try to pick the the highest point. This is something that I've learned the hard way is getting, you know, being winded. So you you got to be really careful about that, and sometimes you know it just doesn't go your way because you know as you know if you got elevation you're going to have swirling winds in the mountains. So you know you got to be really careful, and you know a lot of times I'll pick a stand to hunt that day based on the wind. So you know that day. So if you're hunting the north. If you go to the north side of the mountain and the wind's coming out of the north or northwest, it's going to be blowing up the mountain. And that's, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I've had pretty good success when there's been a northwest wind. So, you know, you just got to take that into consideration that that it's there and and you don't want to go down... You know, there's some, I've found some really beautiful places that were closer to the bottom, big, you know, laurel draws and stuff. But a lot of times you just can't hunt those because the deer smell you. The, the, the wind just swirls around in those 
the lower you get. You know, I I had a situation. I hung a stand during the season in National Forest because I hunted on the ground above there, and deer just kept filtering up. So I went and this is before you you can't hunt National Forest anyway on Sundays. But I before you can hunt at all on Sundays, I went on a Sunday and put a stand up and in this spot, and it was I took that into consideration. It was three quarters of the way up the ridge. And it was like a bowl there, and I went there, and the first time I hunted it, I killed a really nice buck. And, you know, they always say it's the first time you hunt is the best. Well, after I went there after that, every deer that I ever saw smelt me. So I realized that, I, you know, even though I got lucky that first time, it wasn't a place that you could put on a stand. You had to go to a plan B, which was go... I actually went over to the next ridge where I could kind of see down in there and put it on the next ridge, which was up higher. So it's just one of those things in the mountains, some deer are going to smell you. I mean, I don't think you, anybody can protect that a hundred percent. So highest possible spot where you're thinking about hunting and to, you know, with the prevailing winds of, you know, if it's from the south, is that going to be going towards the deer? And how is that going to be going towards it? Is it going to be going straight down to them? Or is that going to be at an angle? So, you know, you got to know where north and south is. And another thing that I do when I'm actually hunting, and I'll go through two or three bottles a year of the little scent checker stuff, the little bottles you squeeze. And I'll, I carry that in my pocket when I'm on stand. And every 15, 20 minutes, I get that out to see if that wind has changed. Because I, I, I believe that much in the wind that you got to be, you know, it, if it's swirling around, where's it going? You know, is it going down in there where you think the deer are coming? I've moved before because of that. So just, you know, it didn't look right because, you know, I just don't think you can beat a deer's nose. Jim, how does thermals affect you in the in where you position stands up above cover or down below thick cover while you're hunting the mountains? Well, I've, I've, you know, you, you got that's, you know, there. I've, I think I've had it hurt me more in the evenings where deer, where I tried to hunt main mountains, and you know, it just filters down, and the deer might come down below you across or you know going across the ridge instead of or down below you know, going on the side of the main mountain so you know it's it's a consideration again if you if you do your homework right as far as putting your stand in the right place i think you can mitigate that some but you know it, it's there it's i found that i don't i don't want to be on a main mountain in the afternoon when it starts to change, when, you know, it gets to be 4 o'clock and all of a sudden that you got the thermal blowing down on you there. So, uh, that, you know, this is something that I, I wouldn't try to do now. I wouldn't try to hunt that. So, but if, you, if you've got the highest point of the ridge and, it, you know, and the wind's blowing off the side of that ridge... 
and you don't ex- really expect the deer to come there, I think you kind of mitigate that from. A minute ago, you mentioned uh, like how much you check the wind on stand, and you also mentioned that it's made you move before. Uh, have Have you ever had an experience where the wind shifts and and you get down and adjust and then kill a deer after that wind shift? Well, I can't say that I have. I can't say that I haven't either. I, I haven't really correlated that, you know, that, that it's happened. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of more big on don't want to ruin the stand because, you know, not every deer that you encounter that smells you is going to snort, you know. They're, some of them are just going to turn around and sneak away. I mean, I, I know I've heard them coming before that gate you just know it's a big buck and you know they just got that way they walk if you heard it before you you know it and just had them for no reason just turn around and and walk straight back down and yeah and i'm pretty sure they smelt me because i was not moving and in a tree and you know i just think they smelled me i mean i don't think it was a they were close enough for it to be like a sixth sense or something but you know i was like yeah that deer must have smelled me and just swapped ends and, and when they swap ends and you just walk straight back down the way they came you i believe it's probably a big buck now i want to talk about uh stand placement on certain terrain features so like when when you're going to set up somewhere what is something that makes you find like the tree like i'm gonna get a shot from this tree right here uh where you just know that deer's gonna walk next to you are you trying to use you know a terrain feature but also like uh more smaller stuff on the ground like maybe a down tree to funnel a deer towards you or kind of what does that look like um not really a down tree or anything i mean if there's something that funnels them through like a you know i like to call it a bridge uh if there's like a little knob on one side and then a little knob on the other side and there's like a a saddle or a little bridge that goes in between them, then, you know, that will funnel deer. And, you know, then you're still going to pick, I think if you stick with picking the thicker side of the ridge, and you, normally here what you're going to see is one side of the ridge is going to be kind of more open woods. And then the other side is going to be laurel. And again, you want to pick that side that's the edge and the thicker stuff is on that side. Cause you know, a lot of deer I've seen come right up the edge of it. And, but you know, it's a bonus if you can get at a point where you can see down into that stuff, a draw going down the side into a drainage is really good. So, you know, that's, I'm just going to pick that sort of spot every time. I'm not going to go and look down the, the open side of the, the ridge. I'm sure deer come down that side, but, you know, your odds, I think, increase the thicker you can get it. Jim, let's go over some more terrain features that you like to focus on while in the mountains. Maybe some also some subtle terrain features that most people won't think about. You I mean, you've talked about drainages, especially maybe coming in and out of like a thick area. But what are some other terrain features that you like to see, you know, incorporated maybe with thick cover that are like maybe some really good spots that are worth putting a tree stand over? Well, you know, any kind of depression or saddle or something, because, you know, I, I think a, a mature buck is going to want to, 
he he's trying to hide himself. I mean, I literally have seen him over the years, you know, never stop in the open at all. You know, they just they just have an uncanny knack to not stop where they're exposed. So, you know, it stands to reason to me that if, you know, they're going to use any kind of terrain they can that it kind of hides them as they're walking, you know, your saddles and um, thickets and, and uh, any, you know, the drainages. If you go, you know, if you just dissect the woods and go in there and scout and you go through those laurel thickets on the side, the trails that you see down in there, you know, a deer could get by you in a second if they're not making much noise and you wouldn't even know it. So, and, you know, if you've ever wounded a deer and you, they always go and you just learn a lot. If you wound a deer and you're trailing it, they just go through stuff and you're like, I never realized there was trails in here. And, you know, that's the kind of thing you're looking for. If you can, you know, see those side hills and, you know, I say the kind of the draws that come up out of there because usually you can see down through there a little bit you know a lot of times if it's just flat and there's laurel there you just can't see and you know, unless you're up in a tree and you know then it's still difficult so very interesting now jim i've got to ask do you have maybe a story in mind of one of these you know big mature bucks that you've killed in the past where you went in you hung the stand in the summertime or whenever you were hanging a stand you thought in your mind this is going to be a really good spot to come back and hunt. Maybe you had a little bit of history there. You came back and then shot a deer there in November. Do you, do you have a hunt like that that maybe you can kind of break down the whole progression and, and really kind of show the listeners exactly kind of what goes through your mind from hanging the stand to killing a buck in that spot? Well, let me see. I got uh, one, and I actually didn't hang a stand there. Um, I, I stood up... Every year I would go in there, I found a thicket. It was up kind of on the main mountain. The bottom of the main mountain is a really thick laurel thicket, and there was a logging road that came out of it. And I, every year I would try to go back there because I just felt like it looked like a spot that a big buck would bed in up in that thicket. And then they might come down that draw there, basically, as an old logging road. And I hunted it for, actually for several years. You know, two or three times a year, I'd get up on that side hill. I was, it wasn't a stand there, but I could see down into that. And like the fourth year that I ever hunted there, and the only deer that I ever seen there is came right out of that that laurel thicket and walk right down that logging road and it's to this day is one of the nicest bucks i've ever killed so and you know he just basically did exactly what i thought it would do so but you know i've killed lots of deer that you know i went and put a stand up and eventually you know they walked through there so that's where your persistence comes in again you it's not gonna. It's probably not gonna happen right away. You gotta, you know, even if if you've done your scouting and you believe that's the best place, and that's, you know, what it might not. Every year is a little bit different with the food in the woods, in the mountains. You know, 
one year, one altitude, they might hit, and the next year they might not. And the same, you know, one ridge might hit one year, and the next year it could be the next ridge. So, you know, it's it's very, it's different every year. That's where, you know, scouting is important to, you know, to, that's where I like the, uh, what I call the spoke stands where all the ridges come in the higher up you get and they come in and you know you can kind of mitigate that a little bit Jim for being the first time you've ever been on a podcast you're really good at these segue transitions because you <laughs> open up the next I'm just I'm just talking <laughs> hunting with you guys I mean I you know this is something I've done all my life to, you know I've tried to learn a little bit every year and get a little bit better at it and you know and, you know, I think experience does matter. It definitely does. It matters with uh, patience and confidence, too, you know, because you've done it successfully several times, then you, you kind of start saying, well, this is, this is who I am. This is what I do. I, there's other ways. I'm sure you've done podcasts with, with other great hunters that do things a little different or a lot different. And they stick with that, and that's what works for them. This is kind of what has worked for me. So I'm going to stick with it because, you know, that's where I am. And until it stops being successful, I'm going to stick with it. That You know, Jim, I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, you, you transitioned perfectly into going over uh, perseverance. And that's something that we really want to go after is perseverance and, and persistence and how that's such a big part of what you do. But you, you, that was an excellent point, which you just made about, you know, you do what's helped you be successful. You know, there's other guys, again, we've interviewed other guys um, who, you know, think differently, but they also hunt different parts of the country, but they still kill big deer doing what works for them. The thing is, is figuring out what works best in your area. Go out, have confidence in what you're doing and have the persistence to go out there and be successful. And that's exactly what you do, which goes to the topic I want to cover, which is persistence. Being persistent while you're out there, no matter how old or how young somebody is, having the confidence to go out there, and every time you're in the woods, be on your A game, which I struggle to be. I told you that before we got on the podcast. I've screwed up on three big bucks, two of them huge bucks in the last two seasons for just getting out, you know, losing a little bit of that mental, um, you know, this kind of game time um, mindset halfway through a hunt and and screw up on a deer because I wasn't paying attention at the time where it seems like you're always on point, which goes over to kind of your mindset of how persistent you are hunting areas because it looks good. It's got the sign. It's got everything you think it's got. And it's just a waiting game. It's a time game for that buck to come through there because of these big loops that they're running. And one thing I want to touch on is kind of persistence and how that plays such a big part on everything that you actually do. So would you go over and just explain to us how persistence is something that you really take to heart and, uh, you know, on a, on a yearly basis, and that's what gets you through these long seasons to be successful? Okay, well, uh, you know, I think um, one of the things I do before it ever even starts is I have goals. I mean, just like with anything else, if you want to be successful at anything, you want to set goals for yourself that are, you know, realistic and and something that you know you can do. And I do that. I, you know, I have a goal in mind, and I want to accomplish that goal really bad. 
And I know from experience that if I go out there and I've done the scouting and I've picked the very best places that I can and put my time in and done everything I can and picked the, what I call the high probability places for killing a mature buck, then that helps me be confident to be able to sit there and not say, well, darn, I, I think probably over this next ridge would be better. You know, and everybody has those thoughts. I have those thoughts, and everybody does. But see, I think the difference between me and a lot of folks is I've went in there and actually scouted and scouted and scouted and and then, you know, over the years I've gained that experience of being successful in certain spots. And I think if you were successful in once there and you you know, you've thought it all through, most likely there's a good chance you'll be successful there again. And, you know, so you would do the same thing. And, you know, I'm going to do the same thing because I, that's one thing I think too, you got to figure out who you are, what, what you really want to do. And, you know, do you really want to do this? Cause I've taken plenty of people over the years and they did, they didn't last very long because, you know, they want to be a big buck killer for two or three trips. But then, you know, it, it, if you're not, not successful, then, then it doesn't look as good. Well, I really want to kill a deer for my freezer or, you know, I, let's go to this mountain or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and that's, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I, I've done what I know I can do. I've done everything that I can do to be successful and I'm going to stay right with that program. That's what centers me is having my goal and knowing that I've done the work. And, you know, I've had people offer to take me to a new spot or something that sounded like a really good spot. I've turned them down, and they surprised. And I'm like, why? And I said, because I don't know that area. I would just go in there, and I would be thinking that, you know, well, it's probably better over here, and it's hard to sit still. So I can sit still a lot longer, and I'm just persistent from the first day of bow season to the last day of, of late muzzleloading season. And, and I've, I've ate my tags more than one year. It's going to happen to anybody. And, you know, it's not that bad. The sun will come up the next day. And, you know, you just try to learn from it. What could I have done different? That sort of thing. And, it, and I, I'm just confident that I will get the job done and get a chance if I hunt hard. One thing we haven't talked about, Jim, but uh, I don't know how many counties you hunt now, but I remember you told me you used to hunt like six different counties, uh, you know, throughout the season, both on public and private, just bounce around from areas that you just knew, like the back of your hand, and areas that you knew you had spots that every time you went in there, there's a chance to kill a big deer. How much does it take confidence-wise to be able to be successful, find areas in different parts of the state that are similar as in the, the things that you're looking for, but you're finding them on different mountains and different pieces of public and private land that you think you can go in there during season and get an opportunity at a big deer. Cause I think a lot of people, they look at a map and it's so overwhelming for them. 
Um, and they don't really know where to start. And it, it, I feel like it's hard to be persistent, especially in a certain area where you know there's a big deer when you're like, oh, that next ridge over that, you know, might be better. Or maybe, you know, five miles down the road might be a better spot I need to check out. How do you have the persistence to, you know, stick to your guns and hunt the areas that you have confidence in? Well, you know, I, I think it goes back to, you know, doing the same things and what, you know, going in there and scouting ahead of time and, and kind of learning, you know, learn your ground, learn as good as you, as much as you can walk as much as you can study the maps ahead of time, then go in there and put the boots on the ground and be confident that you've picked the best spots where, you know, and even if you, you know, even if you, you, are new to that spot and you didn't you weren't able to go in there over the winter you know i'm going to be faced with that this year and we'll see how that works out uh, because you know i got a new place that's supposed to be a good place but you know i'm going to go in there with the same principle that i'm going to be looking for those thickets i'm going to be looking for the you know the the finger ridges that you know, filter up into the mountain and, you know, hunting the thicker side, you know, if there's a saddle in there or something, you know, the, uh, uh, talked about the little bridges between two knobs. That's if you, you're going to, I'm going to always pick that kind of spot over and over and over because I, you know, I, I believe that a, you, there's a lot of terrain features. But I, I favor those because, you know, that's where I've been successful. And, you know, I feel like a, a big buck over time is going to probably use it all. And, you know, it's just, will they use it in the daytime or not? You know, they're going to use a lot of the woods in the dark. And you're looking for the places they're going to be in the daytime. And that's, you know, that's where you're going to go back to the thick stuff. And I'm... If you use that same principle, you should be able to go from one place and kind of apply it to a new place as well. Jim, let me ask, with your spreadsheet of all the bucks that you've killed, all the talking mature deer, how many of those deer were killed on the first time you saw those deer? Well, I'd say almost all of them were killed the first time I saw that deer. So... You know, I've, a lot of my hunting career, there was no such thing as a camera, a trail camera. So all you could do is pray that, you know, you did the right things. And, you know, you you would find an occasional big rub here and there. But, yeah, I'd say almost all the deer. Now, the biggest one I ever killed, I, I actually saw that deer during muzzleloading season. But I already knew he was there for two years before because... You know, he was rubbing trees that were ridiculously big. And I knew he had big brow times because he gouged the trees out. And, he, you know, he's got almost uh, 10 and 11-inch brow times. So, I mean, I kind of had him pegged that he was there, but no cameras. So, you know, it, I it actually didn't kill him the first time I saw him, but it was the second time I actually saw him. So, but uh, yeah, most of my deer, the first time I ever seen them. Well, one thing that's important, the reason why I wanted to bring that up is you told me about, there's not a lot of second opportunities on a lot of these deer from what you've ex- talked to me before. 
and you have to make it happen within three to ten seconds of seeing that deer. You have to, you know, tell whether or not it's a shooter and make something happen, whether it's with a bow, muzzleloader, or with a rifle. You just don't have a lot of opportunities, so you got to capitalize on them as quickly as possible as soon as you get that opportunity. And that's another part of the persistence I think that's really important to talk about is it's not like we're hunting, you're not, you're hunting, you know, uh, Iowa where you're hunting big fields, big ag, you're seeing these bucks all summer long, you're seeing them all fall along, you're getting encounters and sooner or later you kill the deer. Now, a lot of this is you might catch them on trail camera once or twice. And then pretty much the first time he's in front of you, you're trying to make a decision whether or not you can shoot that deer. And if not, you know, it, it seems like it's, it's hard to get a second opportunity at those deer. Yeah, and, you know, you, you're right, three to ten seconds, and, you know, you got to decide whether it's a mature deer, and, you know, one of the things that you're going to look for is, you know, the size of the body, the, you know, the face, does it kind of look like it's short? It's got a short face, that Roman nose kind of thing. And another thing that I look for is the, the thickness of the antlers. That's a sure sign if it's got mass that it's probably an older buck. And, you know, cameras have helped a lot with that. If you have a picture of that buck, you know, you might recognize it. So that is definitely helpful if, you, you know, you have because you, you, you can, you'll look, you'll see the characteristics of that buck. And you know, by far the the most of the bucks I've killed, they're not they're not feeding along at all. They're not they're going somewhere. So whether it's up or down, they're going somewhere, and they're you know that lot you know they don't even stop a lot of times, you know, or they just stop you know for a few seconds, scan ahead of them, check the wind, and then they're they're going again. It's mostly moving, you know. And you see a few. Killed a few, you know, pushing does, and they're moving pretty good too. But they're, you know, they're not moving as fast as a, that bucket's on a mission. So I, I, I can only maybe see one or two bucks that I've ever killed that that were actually kind of feeding along. That's just very unusual. Jim, on the topic of persistence, is there anything else about persistence that you think you know you ought to touch on, or we ought to touch on? to kind of relay how important that is for, for especially the region, the country that you hunt? Just, you know, believe in yourself that you've done the work and, you know, it's, it's the reward at the end is, you know, what you're looking for that you, you know, if I've looked back now and reflect on, you know, all this stuff is it's so rewarding that you've accomplished your goal. And, you know, that's, that's really what it's all about is, you know, you, you were able to do this yourself. You, you went in there and you, you know, you did the scouting and you picked your stand site and you did all that. And, and when you do that, when, and you, you know, if you're successful once or twice, and then that should make you more persistent because you, you know, oh my gosh, I've, I did this. This is the, I'm on the right track. And then go and don't, you know, don't let it beat you up because, you know, you're not going to be successful every time. That's, you know, everybody has bad luck. There is a, a, a component of luck in this. I can't tell you how many times that I, you know, there was a buck coming to me and I didn't realize it. And I 
turned my head or, you know, moved a little bit and it saw me or smelled me. You know, like I've said, sometimes they'll smell you. Nothing you can do about it. So, but that tells you you've gone on the right track, even if you're, you don't get the deer because that tells you they're in there. You, you know, you have to stand in the right place probably. It just had some bad luck. Yeah, that, that's a good point. You know, there's there's always low, you know, there's always low times when you're hunting. You know, there's always missed opportunities. But, you know, with you talking about being persistent, it's trying to capitalize on every opportunity that you get and be as efficient as possible, uh, which is which is huge. Um, you know, that's something that I definitely need to work on. Uh, I know me and Michael Pike have talked a lot about this as well, our buddy Michael, about, you know, we can, it's like we can find the deer. It's just, you know, when it comes to actually, you know, getting the shot, executing the shot, executing, you know, those final few seconds of making it happen is a lot of times where we struggle, um, which is unfortunate. That's one reason why we don't have as many big deer in the wall as we should just from opportunities lost, uh, which is kind of part of that persistence. It's being persistent all the way up until executing the shot in afterwards. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you can find all the big bucks on the mountain, if you can't execute the shot, um, mm-hmm. then, you know, you're just, you're just, all you're doing is just looking at deer and, you know, losing opportunities. <laughs> Scaring bucks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I definitely think that's a skill that you can learn, you know, as you go along, you know, and, that, and the way I do it is, you know, once I see that deer and I'm say that's the deer I want to shoot. I don't never look at the antlers again, not because I'm thinking it's going to give me buck fever or anything. I go into the mode of I've got to kill this deer. And how I'm going to kill this deer is I'm going to see where he's going. I'm going to, the way I do it is I'm going to look for an opening in front of that deer. And I don't care if that deer is, stopping or not stopping a lot of people say well you need to wait till you stop i i believe that you take the first decent shot that you have there a big buck doesn't give you a perfect shot in the mountains it, it you know this isn't the, the midwest like you said in the field it just you know your chances of getting the perfect shot are not not that great so you're gonna put your gun out in front of there and if they walk into my scope i'm shoot, i'm shooting at the chest as soon as i think he's you know in i got the chest in there i'm gonna shoot and sometimes they walk through there and i haven't been able to get the shot and then i go to the next opening and you know and then when i take the shot you know hopefully they're you know gonna kick or they're gonna go down they're gonna run if they go down and they're trying to get back up then you need to shoot him again. I mean, you don't want that deer to get up and be able to, you know, run down in a steep ravine or, you know, get away from you. So you you, you shoot until the deer is, you know he's not going anywhere. I mean, I, I believe that because I know people that and have lost big deer that way. They got... You know, they were trying to get back up, got back up. I had a deer get back up on me one time with a muzzle loader, and thankfully he got his antlers stuck between the fork of a sapling tree and couldn't get them loose, and I, I had time to reload my gun and shoot him again. 
and uh you know so i definitely uh, you know and then you know then you're going to keep an eye on that deer too to make sure and give them a little time to to die so uh, you know i think that's a skill you you don't wait for the i mean I, I think that's the point don't wait for a perfect shot because they're the masters of not giving you a perfect shot absolutely now jim uh We've taken a bunch of your time here. I can't thank you enough for uh, for coming on the show. Uh, do you do you have any thoughts that, that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Especially some of the guys maybe out there, Jim, that maybe they have been struggling. You know, what's what's a piece of advice you'd give them that maybe have a little more confidence going into the season? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, use all your resources. If you, you, you have a person in your, you know, your that's around you that knows how to hunt, you know, bounce questions off of them. Uh, you know, think it through. You know, your scouting. Think of all the things that you know you're gonna look. Think like a deer. Think like a big buck. And you know, where would you stick to? And you know, go go in realizing that it's 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 a long term thing. It's not. You're not gonna go out there two times. You could go out there the first time and you hunt. Know, you know, they always say the first time you hunt a stand is the best, and that's possible, but if that doesn't happen or if, you know, something else, some other thing comes into play and you, you don't get them, you, you, you just have confidence in yourself and keep doing it, and you will be successful, you know, however you're doing it. So, you know, stay in the woods. Stay in the woods as long as you can. I mean... You know, it's hard. You know, everybody wants to go home and watch, you know, their favorite sports team play on TV on Saturday and, you know, Sunday possibly too. And, you know, maybe you can use your phone and check the score. Stay in the woods. I think that's a real big key for me is the more time I spend in the woods, the more successful I am. And then when you are successful, then that that should even make you more confident. And you, you take that, you know, and if it's something you really love to do, then, you know, I think that will help you stay in the woods. And I, I just love it. You know, that's all I can tell you. Is I'm, I was born to be in the mountains. And, you know, if somebody offered me a real good farm to hunt, I'd probably hunt it some, but I, I prefer to be in the mountains any day of the week. Awesome. Jim, man, we appreciate it, and uh, I hope you have a heck of a deer season this year, man. All right. I hope I've helped somebody. All right, folks, that's going to wrap that one up. If you haven't already, we'd appreciate it if you would leave us a review on iTunes. We have done we got a bunch of them last week after I said that, so we're going to read those at the end. There's one in particular that made us laugh pretty good, so yeah. appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, we appreciate the written reviews. Again, any five-star review is fantastic, but uh, you know, go and leave us a written review. We really appreciate those. But anyways, Andrew, what was your thought on kind of the podcast with, uh, with Jim? I loved it, dude. I like how um, – the thing that stands out about him to me is just how he keeps track of everything. Yep. Uh, like the whole data aspect, because that's kind of that, that's kind of what I went to college for. I kind of do that at my work now. Um, just like data collection, data management, data this and that, using it to your advantage. And the thought of doing that with deer hunting really piques my interest. Yeah, that was something that he sent me. Um, last week and it really caught my attention because he's like oh yeah i've kept a spreadsheet of all the bucks i've all the mature bucks i've killed since like 1987 
And I'm like, holy crap, dude. And he sent it to me. And it's so well broken down. Again, when this episode drops, everybody, maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week when this episode drops, uh, I'll, I'll post some uh, photos of actually the uh, the spreadsheet so y'all can see what he does. And this is something maybe we ought to try to do as well, like from the different encounters, maybe not even just the bucks we've killed. But like he said, he kind of wished that he would have done this with all the big bucks he's encountered as well. Yeah. The conditions, what the situation yes. was like, That's why the I terrain asked. feature he was hunting. So many details there. And one thing you could do, nowadays, you could do it and put your Onyx pin attached to it, like the GPS coordinates. So you could actually open it up on a map and actually see where all these points were. Have the spatial attribute. There's my GIS degree kicking in. That's called a spatial attribute. When you have, he's got all that. If you had the point where he killed it, really, he said the county. That That is kind of the same thing. But, like, if you had the, it'd be really useful if you had the point which is something I started doing last year. Um, every time I had an encounter with a deer, like if I did a sit, when I'd get in the stand, I would drop a pin on where I was sitting. At the end of the day, if I hadn't seen anything, I think I'd make the pin black. Uh, if I did see something, I would make it white. And then it, what I saw, I would write it in the notes of the pin. Uh, and then if I killed something there, I'd make it yellow. And so then you end up... It really, it's interesting because, one, you see how many times you sat and you're like, my goodness, I hunt a lot. And then you also get to see, um, like, the this, like a spatial pattern on top of, like, yeah, you might see a certain, um, a certain wind direction or something or a certain weather condition. You see a lot of deer. But then that spatial pattern, too, you might, like, I went through and I mapped every single deer I've ever killed in my life. Oh, yeah. Which is, that. like, yep. 20, it's, like, 25 or something. Uh and I went through and I just started looking at all these different dudes that I've killed in all these spots, looking for like any consistencies with them. Um, and one one thing that was weird is you know a lot of the bottoms around here kind of run north and south. I've killed a very high percentage of those deer have been killed on the uh, let me think about on the eastern side of slopes. Mm, so yep. like the the southeast side of a slope. So that's pretty interesting. But anyways. Um, yeah, stuff like that, looking for those patterns. And when you collect data, you can do that and you can tailor it to, you know, whatever you want to do. You can record as much or as little as you want. You know, I would, it's like planting a tree. The best time to start was yesterday. You know, like it, when you want to see the results, if you, if you want to plant the old apple tree in the backyard and get some apples from it, the best time to plant it was last week, you know? So it's the same way with the data collection. You know, if Georgia, you're already hunting, I would, you know, I would, I would, if you saw some deer last week, I would go drop a pin right there and uh, write down what you remember about the conditions. And we'll come up with a color code. This is something I think we can all do, especially anyone that's listening to the show that maybe they see like, oh, there's there's real value with this. And this is something maybe for sure we ought to try to do is, you know, since we're kind of hunting as a group, you, me, Michael, and, mm-hmm. uh, and Clay, come up with a system where we have, like you said, certain color pins. You know, you see deer, you didn't see deer. But also under those pins had the details of what the hunt was like, the the weather conditions. I mean, literally like what um what Jim had done, um, just very very detailed. You know what direction were the deer coming from? What time they actually came through? Detailed, almost a detailed digital journal like that, so that you can keep track and then you can see that progression and see if there is a pattern in the long run. Especially if we're all hunting kind of different areas, but you know on different days, maybe there's a certain pattern with times of movements. You know what they're heading towards, what they're coming back from, that mm-hmm. you can kind of pin down, and then you have that data that you can build on year after year. Exactly. Because you, you, there's you'll find a short pattern in a year. Ten years later, you'll see a huge pattern. That's exactly kind of what what uh, what Jim's seen. 
which killing these deer, there's certain five day increments in like the month of November that he's killed more deer than other times. Yeah. And it's really, really fascinating. And it's like, I feel like so many more people can really apply that to where you're at and how you hunt and just really dial down not only some of the best times to hunt, but also what were some of the characteristics of that spot that caused you to see those deer? You know, when you're talking about, you know, terrain features, you know, along with, you know, thick habitat, food sources close by, you know, also detail you could do it was, what is the acorn crop like in the area that you're hunting? Mm-hmm. Is it a bumper crop this year or is it, you know, kind of, you know, dry, um, stuff like that you could apply and have all those detailed points and you kind of look at it again, you might learn something this year, but a couple of years down the road, you're like, holy crap. Yeah. Years that there's not a good acorn crop. They're concentrated in these areas. Yep. Years that there's a great acorn crop, maybe they're completely different. Yeah. And finding those bachelor groups and just kind of bouncing around, I do. I think it's fascinating. And it's a long-term commitment too. You you can't, you know, you you'll you might see some short-term trends with it, which is which will be beneficial. But really, the big payout is when you see that like five-year pattern, and you've been doing it like he like Jim's been doing, it, or Warren Womack's another one that everyone thinks about when they think about uh, keeping logs of deer. When you you get that long term pattern and you can draw off that and just make it snowballs, you get more successful because of it. So that's something I definitely want to start doing. What was your What was your thoughts on his scouting techniques, especially when it came to you know not wanting to hunt areas or not going into areas that have like easy access when it comes to like pulling off the road? I think, I mean, I mean, there's no doubt it works. Um, <laughs> It's. I think that's a very area specific tactic. Where we hunt, uh, that I don't. It. I've gone to like the hardest to reach places I could get to, and I find people there. You know, like for our area, it specifically, I just I feel like the better deer that we found have just been overlooked. It's not necessarily difficult to access. Some some of them are really 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 easy access. Um. Especially that first bachelor group that Michael got on camera. I mean, like, don't get much easier than that. Well, wait, hold on. I'm trying to think which bachelor group you're talking about. I can't say the first. The first one, not not the wizard. You okay. know, not him, but the other the other one before that. Where's like five bucks? And there's that big nine point, and then there's the one in the back. That's not that, the first batch of group you found, but okay. Well, that's the first, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That's what I'm saying. We found the first batch of group was about a month before that. But yeah. anyway, well, see, you think that one's easy to access, but it's really not. It might not be super far off the road, but how you can get in there and hunt that deer. Oh, I know exactly what I do. I'm not going to explain it on the podcast because it would be too obvious, but I'll tell you afterwards. Okay, okay. Look, think of it like... Like this. Okay, no, that's audio, go, no, it's audio show. Okay, just okay. J-hook. I got you. Yeah, J-hook. You're J-hooking. Okay, I got you, man. That no, wouldn't be that hard. Okay. All right, so. Well, what do you think? Oh, no. I mean, I think there are certain pieces of public land that, and there's places in Tennessee that I can really see this happening. There's places that, you know, you're always going to have pull-off areas. You're going to always have parking spots. But there's some places that just have more limited parking than others. Okay? Yeah. You don't have pull-off. You don't have gates everywhere. Um, you know, in, in areas where there's a lot of logging, you know, there's different, um, you know, natural, what do you call it, resource industries going on. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more pull-offs. There's a lot more side roads, trails, and stuff that you can pull your truck off and park. Some places, that's not the case. And talking like where he's at, it seems like that's a very limiting factor in some areas where you don't have, like, that perfect pull-off. You might be on a main road. 
okay, um, or just be in an area that just doesn't have a hiking trail going in on it, so there's not like a nice parking area. I feel like there are certain areas that you can do that at. Find a place that's difficult to pull over and park, but also where that there's some kind of barrier of entry there. Yeah. Whether it's a creek crossing, whether it, like he was talking like a big ridge or something that you gotta go instantly right over the top of before you get back to like some of the better stuff. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that, or what I've seen, really thick cover right on the road that nobody wants to walk through, and I don't blame them. Yeah. No, I agree. The that seems to be especially where we're at, which I don't know why it's like this where we are. Maybe it's the demographic. That's the one thing that we've talked about, like the demographic of people, uh, like hunting where we hunt. I feel like a lot a lot of the people that hunt where we do are like the kind of people that listen to podcasts and are on Facebook just because we live in that kind of that area. It's not very rural. Um and it's like that I feel like they they listen to the same stuff we do where it's like go deep, go deep and you know, that's what we always used to do. And the, like it doesn't matter where I went, you'd run into people. But then, like you said, go into the areas where there's like an immediate obstacle that someone doesn't want to go past, that's that's where I've found. And that's where I was trying to get at earlier. It, it, you know, Jim was talking about at some points that, you know, go deep, go deep. But there was a lot of points he's like, I'm trying to get – he's going to a spot that's not easily accessed. That doesn't mean it has to be super far from the road. It's just it's not easy to get to that spot because you got to go up over a mountain. you got to go through a creek. There's stuff like that. Yep. And I feel like you can do that very easily around here in a bunch of other places mm-hmm. where you're putting some obstacle between you and the truck that's going to keep people from wanting to walk through it. And the most yeah. common thing is going to be just like really thick cover. That, it's the same thing with turkeys. This turkey season where I killed that really big turkey, um, that that's the exact spot. It, it's just like that. It's a spot where you have to park and you have to walk straight off a hill and you got to walk through a swamp and you got to go straight up another hill through a cutover briar choke cut like it's miserable walking back there and it's a long walk too uh but i mean he was in there big old hook spurred turkey just like just screaming off the ridge tops you should (laughs) should get him full body mounted dang it dude if i had the money i would have he was i've never been so proud of an animal my whole life like oh man that turkey Mm. to get that big buck this year getting getting on the stat yeah well maybe maybe i don't know something about like the turkey gobbles at like daybreak and then you play cat and mouse with him and then finally kill him at like 10.30. Like, f- just like five solid hours of hunting that one critter and you're on him the whole time. It's like an 18-pound, um, it's like an 18-pound elk. Yeah, and then and then you, you freaking, you pull the trigger and you roll him, dude. That, I've never had a feeling like that in my whole life. Well, so kind of back to, you know, what Jim was talking about. I, I was very interested in kind of how he scouts because he puts a lot of emphasis in scouting. <clears throat> and that is something that I feel you know, is what helps him be successful. And that's one thing he talks about is too. So, you know, the scouting aspect is something that makes him be successful. But we've talked to so many guys recently as well that put so much emphasis on scouting in season, which yeah. I think can be very successful. You know, Jim was talking about, he hunt, you know, he has a lot of pre-hung sets, whether he's hunting, you know, some of the different national forests or if he's hunting, um, you know, some of the other properties that he has access to hunt, um, but also hunting off the ground where, you know, he's not taking like a mobile climbing setup or anything like that going in the woods, where I feel like that's one big difference is if you're staying more mobile, you can also find that hot sign in season and be able to put a move on. Now, he, you know, him hunting on the ground, he finds hot sign, he can just hunt off the ground, you know, do that. But that's something that's really kind of interesting as well is kind of finding that hot sign in season and making a move on and capitalizing. 
something that really stuck out to me about what he was talking about with this uh, locations, picking out locations. He's like, you asked him a question. I think is the one that he misunderstood it and answered yep. it differently than he thought. But he said he was he was talking about how he'll find the spot. He's like, no, I won't. I won't set up on it right then. I'll go and I'll sleep on it and I'll look at it on the map and. I'll really think about it for a day or two. I'll bring a friend in there and see what they think. I'm like, he puts more thought into which tree he's getting in than like anybody else we've talked to if he's doing all that before he puts a tree stand up, mm-hmm. um, which is something to be said about that. Like we've talked about it before um, where like, I don't even remember where I heard it, but like the whole like uh, three reasons rule. Oh, yeah, dude. And, man, for you that's, guys in you, Georgia hit, right now, you need to do it right now. Hit, hit on that because okay. that's a really good point. You need to. And and you can make it as hard on yourself as you want. Yep. And it's aggravating. It's going to be aggravating. But when you're walking around with your tree stand on your back or your saddle or, or whatever you're going to do, before you get, on, get up in a tree, you have to find three good reasons that you're going to kill a deer there. And you can't, like, if you want to make it real difficult, say, like, uh, like a good wind direction can't be one of those reasons. And then it's like, okay, make yourself name three legit reasons why a deer is going to walk right past in bow range of this tree today. And then you're going to spend a couple days where you just wander aimlessly through the woods for a while. But after a while, and it starts to click, that's what I did last year. It's aggravating, but it absolutely works because it makes you realize how many times you're just walking out there and you're just setting up because you just want to get in a tree. You're tired of walking. You feel like you should get in a tree. You're like, oh, they're going to walk in on me. Oh, I'm wasting a hunt. And really, you're you're being a lot more wasteful if you just get up in some random tree because you're like, oh, here's a three-week-old rub. Maybe he'll come back through. You know, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's people that have been lucky at this by, oh, I'm just going to climb it randomly right here because it's, you know, about to get daybreak. Um, but no, it's an excellent point. It, it takes it from hunting an okay spot. Like, okay, yeah, maybe there's an old rub line here. Um, you know, maybe there's a creek cross. There's something here that, okay, yeah, there's there's some sign here. It's not great, but it's it's okay. It's good. You yeah. Know, it's good enough to, you know, throw a sit at versus finding a great spot. Yeah. And the the amount of okay spots you have to walk past to find the great spot oh, yeah. can be intimidating because I've done that as well. I mean, we did that in Tennessee. Um, I've done it in a couple other places as well, and that's a really good point. It's like finding multiple reasons why you need to get up right now because you don't have to get in a tree. Mm-mm. You can stay on the ground and keep finding and keep yes. covering ground until you find that one yeah. spot. Preach. Amen. <laughs> yeah, dude. I'm telling you, you go out there and at some point, it clicked with me, and it'll click with you too, listening. It'll click with you too, where you will go out there, and uh, you'll be you'll be walking around, and you'll it'll finally click where you'll be like, it'll be more productive if I just don't even get in a tree tonight. If I don't find the spot, and just scout, and just scout exactly, exact, because then you're setting yourself up for success on that next hunt. I'm telling you. No, to keep going, man. Yeah. Listen, that's that's an excellent point cuz listen, you can you can this every, everybody up. thinks and this is this is me. I'm 100% guilty of this. When you go hunting, you have to be in a tree, you have to be hunting. If you can waste so much time by just sitting in a random tree cuz I had this I did this last year. I did this last year. Oh, there dude, was I got some stories from last and, year. <laughs> well, hold on. So, you can be like, "Oh, I'm going hunting this afternoon. I've got to get in a tree." Or you scout until you find that spot. If you don't find that spot, then great. Mark that area off. Move on. 
Mm-hmm. So you're not wasting time, especially someone that has limited time hunting, like now you and me, especially yeah. you now having a legit full-time job. Mm-hmm. Me, been there, done that now. Mm-hmm. And when you have limited time, it's better for you to scout, 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 stay in the ground, find the spot that's, I mean, this money. money exactly. Mm. Before you get up versus, okay, this spot's okay, I'm going to throw a sit at and not see anything. Man, you preach it. Preach it, be like, can I get a good amen? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, there was one set last year where – is early season, and I went in, and I was texting you the whole time. I think I can't. I was texting you or Michael the whole time about what I was finding because we were all pretty interested in this area. And I walk in, and this is where you start. It's gonna be a little bit. You're gonna struggle at first because I walked in and I was finding stuff. I was like, should I set up? That's on this? exactly. And I kept going, and I kept going, and I kept going, and I got to the spot where I probably should have sat. I was like, mm, I'm gonna go a little bit further. And so then I go back in there, and then it's it starts getting real late in the afternoon. I'm like, I need to get up a tree. Like, it got me. And I find, like, I, I wrap around. I got this thicket on top of the hill, and there's a draw going up in the thicket. And there's some mature pines. Like, there's, there's thick on top. And then right off the military crest, there's a band of mature pines. And then below that is hardwoods. And I'm right in that band of mature pines. And coming across that draw right beneath that thicket is a really heavy deer trail. And so I'm like, okay, this looks good. Below the thicket, heavy trail, let's do it. So I get up the tree and I'm just sitting there and it like it just dawns on me like after like an hour maybe and it's getting starting to get kind of dark. Um it just dawns on me I'm like this is not a good spot. Like there's I was thinking about it. I'm like why am I sitting here? I got so mad at myself, dude. I was, I was like throwing crap out of the tree. I'm like I'm going home. Like this is a wasted every sit. every time you go out there, especially on afternoon hunts, you have to have the mindset I do not have to get in a tree today. Yes. Mm. I don't have to get in a tree today. And you t- yeah, tell yourself that cuz I mean, I've done that now. We're like, I mean, I I feel I feel comfortable hunting off the ground if mm-hmm. it comes to that. And that's I did that in, I've done that in Tennessee a few times and it's like you're going in with the mindset I don't have to get in a tree because if you get in a tree you're locked in. Yeah. Okay. Especially if you're carrying a bunch of gear with you and crap and you don't want to, have to tear back down quietly and try yeah. to move on. So you, you want to try to use your advantage of covering the ground, kind of still hunting your way through, scouting your way through, looking for that freshest sign, especially early in the season when you're trying to hit that food source and you're trying to find those bachelor groups. That's one thing we want to talk about. We had a, a listener last year of the podcast, a, a friend of Adrian Farley, who killed a great, great eight point like second day of the season yep. by literally going in there scouting, 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 scouting until he find where a batcher group was coming out of these thick pines into this drainage and he found all their old all their fresh rubs coming down, the the heavy trail and everything that these bucks were using. And he got in as close as possible to where he thought they were gonna bed and shot one of those bucks the first afternoon sitting in the tree. Yep. And it's like scout more than you hunt. And I think some of the best deer hunters that we've talked to had that mindset. You're scouting more than you hunt. The guys are going out of state out of state trips that are successful. They're scouting a day or so before they're actually hunting in a tree stand. If they have five days, they're scouting for a day and a half, mm-hmm. and then they're making a move instead of wasting time. Oh, I'm going to go hunt this spot because it just looks good. Sometimes you can throw a dart at the map and like, okay, this looks good. I'm going to go sit it. I've yeah. done it and had success doing it. But if you put more time in. I don't have to get in a tree today. I don't have to get in a tree this afternoon. And you stay in the ground, you cover ground, you're scouting your way through. Sooner or later, you're going to find that money spot and you'll be able to kill that big deer that's in that area. Yeah. Instead of being 100 yards off that spot. That happened to me last year. Greatest example 
ever. Here we go. <laughs> Greatest example ever. The difference of killing a buck versus getting a deadfall fall down on you and stab you. Okay? <laughs> this is the tale of two yes. tales. So last year, you and me go hunt, go hunt an area, go hunt this drainage. Mm-hmm. Had some hot, I had a hot tip that I went in. I found some, some great rutting sign, mm-hmm. bucks chasing does, not within barely 250 yards of, of, of a, a really good-looking drainage. Yeah. And we were talking about, like, going in there. You're going to come in from one side. I'm coming in from the other side. We're going to kind of get in a spot. We're going to scout until we find that spot to set up on. Yep. And I even got in late. Uh, yeah, you got in, like, an hour after me. Yeah. And, well, I had, see, I had to run back to the truck because my, my long story short, I'm walking through some briars going in, some thick stuff right <laughs> past the truck. Again, you know, kind of cutting the distance from people to coming in. And it was so thick. I'm pushing briars out of the way with my boat. I mean, briars over my head. And somehow my quiver falls off, and I go another half mile down the drainage. I get set up. I'm I'm up in the tree. Go to take a broad, go take an arrow off my off my out of my quiver. There's no quiver. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh son. Uh-huh. It's like two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> I had to go all the way back down. But see, the, what I, what happened was, and I'm going to tell my story, and you tell your version of it. Yep. And kind of show the difference. I t- I had the mindset. We had just interviewed Michael Perry. Uh, we had some other guys on the podcast too, and Michael was talking about hunting these uh, creek drainages. Um, in between, you know, like some big draws and stuff like that. And I was kind of working down this, this, this little Creek and found a Creek crossing right there that looked good. Some bucks on there. It wasn't super thick. You know, there's kind of, it was a cutover on each side, kind of different age cutovers, you know, kind of tall, kind of thick, real thick stuff. But the drainage wasn't super thick. There was sign there, but I'm like, you know what? It's two o'clock in the afternoon. You know, this might be a pretty good spot. I'm going to get up somewhere right here. There's deer droppings. I mean, there's feed sign, all kind of stuff. Kind of, you know, pretty hardwoods, close to thick cover, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I get set up, and I'm like, oh, this looks this looks great. This little creek cross is this thin little thick spot on this, you know, big drainage. I'm thinking the deer are going to kind of cut across right here. I sit there all day long. I think I see a possum, and that's about it. <laughs> and I'm like, nothing happens. Nothing happens at all. Also, I sat too low down. It's the whole wind, old grinner. Well, the wind was swirling, too, because I got too far down closest to the creek. I should have got higher up in elevation. It was, you know, it was terrible sick because I got too excited about just a little bit of sign I found in this one spot. Instead of keep going and get more up on the habitat edge, get out of that drainage, get up on the habitat edge where it's thicker covered. That's what I should have done. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see anything. I, I get down at the end of the night, and freaking while I'm packing my stuff up, leaning up against the tree, all of a sudden I hear a crash. I look up, and this giant freaking white oak branch is falling down right on top of my head. About I <laughs> lean out of the way, and it freaking spears me on my left side, dude. Oh yeah, still got a scar. Yeah, that was a nasty. That that looked like it hurt. Oh, listen, dude, it felt like someone took a baseball bat to your kid wrapped in sandpaper. That's oh, what yeah. it looked like. It looked yeah. like someone hit you with a baseball bat wrapped in sandpaper. Yep. But so that was my story. Eighty grit. Well, see, where I'm trying to get at, I I hiked all the way in there, found this little bit of sign, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna hunt it. Instead of trying to find like the perfect like the large amount of sign, something yeah. that's telling you there are deer coming through. There was deer coming through there, but I couldn't tell if they were there that day or they were there three days ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Where. You did something totally different, and you executed, and you actually shot a buck that night. Yeah. So, I mean, what what was your version of the story? I, I walk in, and this is going in completely blind. I hadn't even walked in here before. Uh, and First I, time in is the best First time, time in. Yeah, I drop, I drop off the, the backside of this big drainage. It's a, it's a pretty sizable hill going down in there. There's a little bit of mountain laurel on it and stuff. 
Um, and going down, I passed some like big trails. Like, and so I'm like, okay, this looks good. There's some fresh sign on them. I get down to the bottom, and I hit the creek, and I, I walk up the creek. So I'm all the way down in the bottom next mm-hmm. to the creek. I'm walking up. Uh, there's some rubs down there. I find where this drainage runs into the main bottom, and right there where that little, it's not quite a bowl, but where that drainage comes down and hits the main drainage, there's some rubs right there, some like pretty tall rubs. Um, and there's like a big scrape or something, but it wasn't fresh. None of it was fresh. Like it had been done that year, and this is like, I think this is December 8th or something is when I killed that thing. Um, and... Uh, I mean, this is probably done around Thanksgiving, maybe, is, so, like, how so, old it So, was. you found buck sign down there. Which but, is, this is peak rut for yeah, us, yeah. by the way. But you find buck sign down there. It's not super fresh. It's down low. What was your next thought process? I looked up the hill, and there's this really, really steep hill that goes up, um, like, right there where the, again, where the, where the smaller drainage hits the bigger drainage, and there's that point that comes out. And I looked up at that point, and I could see all the way up there where it just... The thicket rolled right up to the edge, and then it just dropped. And I'm like, that looks pretty good. So I go walking up there, and I was planning on hunting off the edge of it, you know, farther down the ridge where it kind of flattens out, and you got an oak flat right there next to the thicket. Well, I I climb my way up to that oak flat, and it's super steep, which this is on our YouTube channel, by the way. Um, And it's super steep getting up there. You have to, like, grab trees and climb up. There's, like, little rock overhangs and everything. So it's like a hard funnel. Uh, at the top of this thing. And I get to that oak flat, and there's no rubs. And I'm like, mm, I don't know about this. And there's, But there's a trail that comes uh, right off that point. And the trail is, is pretty heavy coming off the point. But when it gets into those hardwoods, it breaks off and just completely disappears. Like, it's not even there anymore. And I'm like, I don't know, because I thought about walking, keep keep going down the ridge, just move away from all of it. And try to get to this other spot, but I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to walk over. I'm going to follow this trail to that point into the thicket a little bit. So I walk over there, and there's a you, – you think of it like this is so steep, it's almost like a wall that goes up. And then right where the wall, like, crests off, where the military crest is, there's, like, a tiny drainage right there. Um, and so there's kind of like a break in that wall at the very top. There's, like, a nick in it. And uh, that's where that trail went. And the trail kind of split in two, and so you got two really heavy trails coming out of that thicket that just pass right through this little this little draw right there. And I mean, it's like super super subtle. I mean, like you could park a truck in it, like, and that's it. Like that's how big this little draw is. Um, and uh, there's an old scrape right there, and it. I was looking at it. I was like, okay, this is a a big thicket where we found like a bunch of chasing tracks on the other side of it yesterday. So yesterday i think it was the afternoon right mm-hmm. so it's like they're probably in here right now because we found those fresh tracks over there um this is a really good pinch point right here because they pretty if they're coming down this they pretty much have to walk in front of me uh and then i look down and i'm like that those are my two reasons and i'm like okay if there is one deer track one fresh deer track in this in this little like dirt area right here i'm gonna sit here and I look, and there's a fresh deer track, like real fresh. And so I'm like, okay, let's do it. And so I shoot up the tree, and, I mean, I'm there for half an hour, and he comes by, and I kill him. Yeah, and it's like, I get, that was the biggest difference, because I didn't do any of that. I just came in, I found some hot something, I'm like, you know what, this looks good enough, and I just settled. Don't settle for a spot. Yeah. 
you know, go in and, and find that spot that you feel like you have confidence. And that was my problem. I got up the tree. I'm sitting there. I'm like, I feel good about this. But then I'm like, mm, I don't know. I'm like, yeah. I feel like I should have got a little higher up. I was too low. I was way too low. Because, like, the way the hill rolled off, I was, like, in the edge of, like, where, like, two hills came together. One was at a lower elevation than the other one. And I'm at, like, that break in between the two hills. Um, you know, almost, not a saddle, almost looked like, it was like an old logging road right there. It was cut in between the two hills. Um, and I should have been up on the higher hill and, yeah. and got to a higher elevation. I was just too too far low down the wind was terrible everything was bad i just settled for a spot just because there were some there were some bucks on there yeah and that is what not to do well and and jim talked about having confidence in something that works for you and this whole thing that i was doing last year with the like not not setting up unless i found something that was absolutely killer that i, I really started implementing that the day i killed that buck and then i stuck with it and then after I killed that buck, I I killed um, two more deer. I killed two more does after that. But, you know, they're does. Some people don't. But, like, a doe means a lot to me, So especially on these WMAs. And so I went in there, and I did the same thing. I looked for three reasons to set up. I was hunting the edges of thickets. I was easing along until I found the freshest sign. I'm talking, like, fresh tracks in the mud that are from, like, the, that day or that night or something mm-hmm. which you know like obviously trapping back in the day like helped me like learn that kind of stuff but you know even if you don't trap i mean that's not something that's terribly hard to learn it just comes with experience tracks are so key and that's something i started paying attention to last year we really talked about that a yeah. bunch last year fresh tracks really to be honest are one of the best it's my favorite sign it, it is like Probably one of the best signs. You know, a lot of guys get tore up about, you know, big rubs, big scrapes, all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. But it's hard to tell. You know, a rub can look fresh for probably, as long as it doesn't rain and it's not high winds, it can look fresh for a week. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. especially in good conditions. Oh, yeah. A track degrades so quickly, depending, especially mm-hmm. depending on the what it's left in. Yeah. You can truly, if you see enough of them, I feel like you can. You start paying attention ballpark to Ballpark age house how long ago that deer has come through there yeah. especially with the conditions and everything whether it's dry oh, it's yeah. wet you know wind all of that kind of stuff and you can learn so much through the tracks of how deer are using the area and how recently they're coming through if you see a ton of tracks on top of each other there's a place in tennessee that when we hunted the velvet hunt last year there were so many tracks coming through this one i'm like dude they're coming through here all the time but the problem is the ground was so soft it held a track and looked perfect for so long i don't know if those deer came through here last week, because they hadn't rained in a little while, and it was yeah. all just you know wet ground, yeah, they could have came through last week and they still look pristine. Oh yeah, and I'm like, you know, I'll tell you something that's burned me a bunch of times, especially when I was like younger and like really trying to learn my way around everything. I'd find like a creek crossing that would just be a beat down with tracks, and I'm like, oh my god, like they are coming through here twice a day, every day. And then, you know, just through, like, sitting more, I would see, like, like two does come through and, like, walk around on a gravel bar and leave just a ridiculous amount of tracks. Two does come through one time and leave, like, so many tracks. And then that's the same kind of stuff I'd be finding. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, like, look at all these tracks. They must be in here. Tons of deer. When in reality, it could have been a doe and her buddy, you know. Eight, um, uh, geez, hold on. Richard fought who we've had on a couple times on the podcast. I think the most recent one was episode 118. 
um, he talked about that hunting eastern Arkansas. He doesn't like hunting. He doesn't like going off tracks and trails because the area holds signs so well. Yeah. He's like, three does could come through there and leave, like, the most massive trail because they come through there, you know, twice a week. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, the most beat-down trail. You, you, I mean, you can see from 200 yards away in the open hardwoods. It's just ridiculous. He hunts it, and he sees a couple does. That's it. Yeah. He's like, so, you know, there's certain areas that the tracks and trails and stuff like that, they hold the, – the deer can leave signs so easily in those areas. Mm-hmm. It makes it so pronounced that it's um, – uh, what's the right word? It can trick you. Yeah. And make you either think that there's more deer coming through there than what it really is, or they're coming through there more recently or more often than really what's, yeah. what's being shown. So the tracks are really just a – they're a double-edged sword. I mean, that's where – all this is, no matter what we talk about, no matter who we talk to, it's all relative. Like, you've got to figure out how it applies to your area, and you've got to ultimately make the tactic your own. Um, and it's the same thing with the track thing that we're talking about. Like, most places I hunt, tracks are very reliable because they're, they they're in they, shallow soil. Yeah, they don't stay very Hard long. dirt, you yep. know, where it's hard to leave a track, you know, it's going to be difficult, or it's going to be very easy for that track to be then washed away. Yep. You know, here it's like very dusty ground almost, yeah. I would say. And like you hunt areas like where we were uh, at in um, in Tennessee for the velvet hunt, me and Mike hiked in this timber. And, dude, there's tr- dude, we found some areas there's tracks everywhere. But it had that kind of ground yeah. that, I mean, a deer could walk through there a week ago. And that track still looked pretty freaking good. But dude. someone from that area might be able to look at that same track and know better about when it was made. Yep. Because it it comes down to like you'll Experience. be you'll be sitting there and you'll see a, a doe come be bopping through and you'll walk over there and look at her track and be like, okay, that's what a three minute old track looks like. Mm-hmm. And then like one thing that I've done is you'll go out and uh, you'll you'll like see something make a track. And then, like, over time as I'm hunting it, I'll go back to it, like, a week later and see what it looks like then. Like, is it still there? Like, what does it look like now? Especially in different conditions. Um, like, if it's just dry outside and there's no rain, but it's, like, windy. Like, stuff getting blown into the track. Or just the track just becoming less crisp. Yeah, on the edges. That's the, the biggest telltale sign. Is like especially... When it's, like, pressing the dirt and the dirt's cracked. Yes. You know, going away from it. Not even that, but, like, the edges, like, they roll in. It's, like, an like one edge of the other on one side of the hoof or the other, like, it, like, caves in. Yeah. And that tells me that it's probably, you know, wind and then also just the ground settling. It doesn't... Mm-hmm. It, especially in areas here where, like, the soil... The track only looks fresh for like a very short period of time. Yeah. Like just a, a couple this days. This is clay. Yeah. We're hunting in clay soils. But again, those edges of those tracks just, they just, they round off. They're not sharp. It's just, yeah. you can, it's just the area we live in. Like we can tell. Maybe someone else that hunts swampland, they come up here like, oh man, that track looks freaking great. You know, yeah. and it might be a week old. Yeah. So that, that's that's a that's a big deal. Also, driving roads after a rainstorm is one of the best ways. To oh, tell, I love it. Like what it looks I like. Love it. Oh my god, dude. So yeah, man. that's that's an excellent point. But anyways, I think we've because that that's something that we, we've talked about, uh, like using our time this upcoming season. Because your job in turkey season, you didn't even get to hunt. Your job was so hectic. Hopefully, deer season is not like that. Uh, and yeah, my job, I do have a good bit of freedom with my job, so I will be able to hopefully get out it's a decent of, bit. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Hopefully your employer doesn't listen. <laughs> nah, <laughs> hey, as long as I get my work done. Oh, that's true. Um, but anyways, uh, it's like, how can I use my time effectively? And for us living right next to the place we hunt, dude, 
go out after work one day at night, drive roads, and just look for tracks crossing the roads. Like right. like Friday night, go out there, drive around, find some fresh tracks going into this one thicket. You know, just driving roads, very not invasive at all. Be like, okay, I know, I know that there's probably going to be deer in this thicket tomorrow morning when I come in you, here. You know who we talked to that talked about that that hey. tactic about like walking edges around stuff and seeing when bucks coming in or out of a spot. Bennett. Bennett. Yep. What was Bennett's last name? Toller. Toller. Yeah, and he's talking about doing that out yep. there in South Carolina and like cutting tracks, walking around the perimeter of this one area and see if he cuts the tracks coming back out. Because if he doesn't cut them back out, that buck's probably still in there. And pair that up when you got a couple buddies. With Wes's tactics, oh, his jaw drops. With Wes's tactics, man, you got two or three guys, four guys that you're hunting with, and if you can go and find tracks going into a thicket and reliably be able to say whether or not the deer is still in it or not, I mean, because, you know, down here in timber country, you got roads around pretty much everything. Yeah, logging roads, fire breaks. Fire breaks, logging roads. And if you could, like, non-invasively walk that and, like, no, like with a certain degree of like, he's probably still in there. He's probably still in here, and then use Wes's to, boy. Oh my gosh! Oh, I can't wait for deer season. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, I, I so on another topic, equipment. So Mike, uh, Michael Pike, uh, we recorded a real big podcast for episode two hundred, and uh, he actually brought up his uh, Lone Wolf Custom Gear point uh, five. Mm. Um, DS uh, get DS five whatever DS point five, mm-hmm. uh, the Lone Wolf custom gear, uh, small little tree stand, uh, with his uh, mini sticks. Mm-hmm. Dude, that thing was freaking pretty slick, pretty sweet, especially for a tree stand guy. Because how compact that system is, um, God, dude, it's so freaking cool. Um, yeah, I'm pretty uh, pretty tempted to get one of those. I'm not gonna lie. No, there's so many areas that like that would work so well, especially when you're hunting like these real. Real small trees, um, you know, if you're actually getting in some of these eight, nine, ten-year-old pines, you know, you can get a saddle in there, but the problem is there's so many limbs on a lot of these pines. You have to cut you really so many limbs. You really can't shoot out of it. No, you can't unless you shoot right behind you. But, like, you could be in that stand and get tucked up, like, right up against the tree. Yeah. And just kind of have your shooting windows right in front of you. And I feel like it would work out better in that in that scenario. No, it would for sure. I, I know several spots right off the top of my head when you mentioned that where a stand would definitely work better. My problem is – is I'm tired of buying hunting like deer hunting gear. Uh, I want to buy other stuff. That's now. The, that's the funniest thing you ever said. Well, because just, before you we just scalded me for that before. Yeah, we got I was gonna on say here. before we got on here, like, oh man, we'd go buy some freaking waders and all this other stuff. Yeah, and just become a, a certified duck hunter all of in about two days. <laughs> I'm like, forget that crap. Well, it's because like I've got so much. I've got so much deer hunt stuff now. I'm like. Yeah, I could buy more sticks, or I could buy this, or I could just, like... Get that new tethered stick. <laughs> yeah, get the new tethered stuff. Those things do look pretty cool. They're pretty um, cool. But, I don't know. I, I would rather spend it on... Especially getting the dog this spring. I'm like, I just want to get ready for the dog. Yeah, you need to start saving some money for some vet bills, dude. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's where I'm at. I do want some waders. Think about getting some... Uh, some Dan's uh, frog, frogger, waiters, whatever they're called. If anyone, if anyone has those, holler at me. I want to hear about them. Uh, no, nah, you need to get a better scope. That's what, that's what you need to get. I don't know. Well, here's the thing: the scope that you're you're telling me about. I have a three by nine. You're telling me to get a three by nine. I don't know. I don't know. But anyways, I mean, or you ball out and get the two by ten, the yeah. X five two by ten with a fire dot, uh, but you're well, dropping about ninety nine hundred fifty bucks on it. I think I'm gonna hunt 
with the scope I have this year, so I know because I haven't hunted with a gun yet. So I want to. I'm gonna hunt with a gun with the scope I'm used to, and then see what I want changed, and then buy a scope. I think so. I get exactly need, what I you want. You need to go shoot my gun with my scope. It'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll change that. It'll change that real quick. Real quick. We'll, but, go, we'll go to one range day. Like, oh, okay. I, 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 I see, Jacob. <laughs> I wish the I wish the Dequisto stand wasn't five hundred dollars. I'd totally buy one, but like, I don't know, five hundred bucks for it. I just can't. I don't know. I just listen, listen. You're becoming old money, Maxwell. Don't don't act bro. You, you be flaunting <laughs> cash around left and right. No. Freaking Tiffany walking around here with some Gucci belts on. I'm like, what is this crap, man? Oh, oh man. man, you got your Gucci dog. She got her Gucci belt. I got my Gucci gun. Gucci gun. Listen, <laughs> jeez. This this uh, money Myers is about to be. Here, what I was thinking about. Myers. I got the. I just got that um, that new side by side shotgun. Yeah, look at you spending money left and right, dude. My, you paying your taxes? <laughs> IRS about to start coming knocking. So Mike was talking about hunting these pine thickets and being like super close with his uh with his trad bow and like setting up on a trail at like ten yards. I'm like, I'd like to get my side by side with a couple slugs and go sit up in a pine thicket, put one to sleep. That'd be pretty cool. Pull that double trigger. Yeah, give them both barrels. <laughs> no, that'd be terrible. <laughs> I don't know. I probably shot a turkey load worse than that. <laughs> oh, dude, I don't know. But uh, anyway, all right, well, cool. Well, kind of wrap up the show. We've got a bunch of reviews that actually came in from this week. Mm-hmm. Um, where's your phone at, dude? Um, here, I'll, I'll get it out. I'll say, uh, so, again, we appreciate all the new reviews coming in. Uh, I know we had mentioned that earlier. Um, but uh, if you don't mind, if you're especially if you're listening on iTunes, go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. But also leave us a written review. You know, what do you like about the show? What would you like to hear in the future? Um, and again, we, we try to read those out, uh, each week. So we got, a, uh, quite a few that came in, uh, over this last week. So we're going to read some of those out. And, uh, again, we just appreciate the support. It's really cool to kind of see the feedback from you all, especially from people, uh, around the country. We actually had one come in from a guy from Pennsylvania talking about how these tactics mm-hmm. from the podcast actually do apply up there where he's living. Yeah. Uh, especially on high pressure, uh, land in Pennsylvania. But, um, Andrew, why don't you, um, by the way, we said we were going to talk about the wool stuff. Oh, you want to talk about the wool stuff? Real quick? Uh, no, it, we were way too long. We'll it's talk about, about it a, next is, week. It's about to be a seven-hour podcast. We'll, so. we'll talk about it. Don't hey. forget, we have to talk about because we get a lot of questions on uh, like clothing. Andrew has Gucci clothing. Yeah. yeah, man, got got the first light. We got a, been getting a bunch of questions about first light and the merino. Oh yeah, we were oh, we were supposed to talk about. Yeah, we'll we talk about to... next week's episode. Look here, if you're if you're just like dying to buy some merino right now. Don't buy it for outerwear. There you go. That's what you need to know. We yeah. can go more into depth we'll, with we'll it do, We'll later. do it next week. We'll do it next we'll week. We'll do it next week. But for layering, get it. It's awesome. Um. Anyways, all right. All right, let's see. Did we read this one last week? Uh, no, I was going to say that's, that's the okay, most. Okay, so this is the first one. Yep, that's the first one. All right, this is um from uh, BTSNHOS. I don't know how to say that. <laughs> he said, amazing podcast for the DIY public land dot, dot, dot. I think it just cut it off. Five stars. Been listening since day one. Wow. And these guys uh, know how to break down subjects to a level where anyone can understand it. I love that these guys aren't hunting on an Iowa farm and preaching how they hunt. They're hunting public land DIY hunters and are very humble about it. Their 2019 summer podcasts were absolute fire. Glenn Solomon taught so much about southern hunting, I couldn't wait to get into the woods. Recommend listening to 108-133 for some of the best content out there. 
Appreciate it, man. Day one. Man, he's been with us a while. OG, baby. OG, man. He listened man, to us when we were painfully awkward. We were talking about that. We get, I mean, we'll hit three years in February. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah can you believe that? So, our, the, one of the next ones, five-star, uh, great, from JPX200. Uh, nice to hear some someone who does what I do. These same tactics work on high-pressure uh, Pennsylvania land. Tim Knight was on point. That's really interesting. Especially, I mean, Tim Knight being from, you know, that kind of South Georgia area, you know, those tactics kind of applying elsewhere. Again, so Pennsylvania. Yeah, up in Pennsylvania too. So that's cool to kind of see tactics relate across the country. Yeah, man. Thickets. Oh, this is the funny one. This is this is this the is one. Ho- listen, this one is hilarious. This one got me. I read it earlier. I laughed. Um This podcast has quite literally killed me. Dot 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 five stars. If you don't read this on the show, I'm changing it to one star. <laughs> These are my demands. You have seven Linda. days. <laughs> oh, man. This is great. Uh, seriously, though, I'm a northern transplant. Been in Georgia for six years. For the first few years, I struggled. Been a listener for a couple years now, and this podcast really helped turn things around for me. There's so much information out there that it can be difficult to sift through. For Southern Hunters, I found it difficult to constantly consume Midwest and private land-focused tactical content and translate it effectively to the Southern landscape and the public land. Aggressive style of hunting that I need to be successful. Amen. Mm-hmm. That's why we started the show, brother. Um, last year, I bucked out in Georgia. That's what I'm talking about. And the episode on calling with Jeff and Adrian literally put a third bonus buck in my lap on a check-in hunt that I decided to not shoot. These guys are the real deal. They there are little gems hidden in every interview. Grab a pen and take notes. Best part of Monday. Keep it up, fellas. Um, side note: If you follow Andrew and Jacob on social, uh, you'll know that these dudes have some great taste in music. Dan G. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. I'd say we have pretty good taste in music, wouldn't you? Oh yeah, dude. A little who, black who, blackberry smoke. Who, who's um, Tyler Childers? Tyler Childers. Bite your blasphemous tongue. <laughs> He's the only ginger with a soul. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Sings like it. Awesome. Uh, um, next one is uh, two thumbs up, five stars from Kyle Snookin. Um, lots of great info uh, from these guys and their guests. However, after listening to the episodes dating back to the preseason of 2019, I can't listen anymore <laughs> because you always leave Florida out of the conversation, LOL. Just kidding. <laughs> Pretty much everything I've heard applies to me here in Central Florida, and I look forward to more episodes. That's good to know. Yeah, it dude. applies down uh, there. I'll be honest. We have, Didn't we had we had somebody really good? We, yeah, we'll, and it, we'll, we'll get him on okay. at the end of season. He's This dude's super. We, we've listened. We've got, oh, that guy. We've got. We, oh, We man. have a hashtag banger. From, oh, from, yeah. from Florida that we've got to get on that hunts South Florida, Central Florida, public land, killed some big deer, and also hunts out of state. But the problem is, since July, he's been deer hunting. And he's like, he's like, guys, we kind of missed him by a couple of weeks. And he's yeah. like, dude, I want to do the show. He's never been on a podcast before. Mm. But he, he's wrote some articles. Golly. And he's like, he's like, guys, he's like, I love to be on the show. But right now, because of work and hunting, he's like, I hunt every weekend. Week weeknights, I'm always with the family, and I work, you know, eight nine hours a day. So he's like, "We're gonna have to wait till after season." I'm like, "Okay, whatever." Yep. Well, we'll do it, and it's gonna be a good one. So, anyways, man, um, just just remember, we'll we'll have something for you, Kyle, coming yeah. up. Oh so. man, I really I can't. I forgot about him. And dude, listen, I'm talking. This dude's ridiculous. Like, killed like top end bucks coming off public land in, in Florida, and he's got some 
cool interesting tactics very very different very different the kind of stuff that you like when you hear it you just like i start i get excited you get into it yeah that's the kind of podcast i like yeah that's the kind of podcast that i get really into and like you're sad when it's over because you're just like what (laughs) no what was he even talking about sad you just re-listen to it yeah all right last one all right um the woods and water life says Relatable and informative. Five stars. I've hunted Mississippi and Alabama for the past 20 years, and I thought of myself as an out-of-the-box hunter. The topics and information your guests and you both discuss has led me to step back and try new things. Keep it up. Appreciate it, man. That's awesome. I'll try new things. Yeah. That's what, that's what Jim was saying. It's like, you know, you got to find something that works for you. you got to have confidence and the perseverance and the persistence to keep after it. Yeah. Um, so that's that's an excellent point there. But like, I mean, and we're right there with everybody. I mean, I feel like me and you both are in a stage right now where, like, we're not like we're not beginners. Like we've we've killed like a pretty good amount of deer in our lives, um, and we know our way around the woods, but we haven't gotten to the point of our guests where we're consistently killing like nice deer. And I feel like. We're, we're bouncing around, we're trying things, we're hunting different areas, and we're just, like, learning so much right now. I feel like we're both trying to, like, create our our way of hunting. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I forgot to tell you. I got I got a guy lined up for us for next week's episode. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Just, just got another public land, this killer. Coming on for next week. Uh, make what sure. state? Like uh, no, I can't. I can't. Ah. Say. It's a southern state, but I, I'm not. I'm not talking about it right now. Man, I'll tell. I'll tell you after we get off. Okay, but nice. it's. It'll be what a cliffhanger for uh, everyone. Listen, else. hey, just get excited for next week's episode. Yeah. Listen, every week, guys. Listen, we we try to produce the best the best quality content possible with some of the best guests out there, you know, finding guys that haven't been on shows before, or if they have been on shows, our goal, if they have been on shows before, our goal is to break down in much more detail than what you've heard from them before. And yes. that's what we try to do. So hopefully, you know, hopefully that's what we're doing. Hopefully y'all enjoy the show. Um, Andrew, you got anything else? Uh, write in your recommendations. Um, oh, yes, oh. I do. Uh-oh. Yes, I do. Uh-oh. Yes, I do. Hold on. Easy, dude. Hold on. Patreon? What are we talking about? Yeah, here? Patreon. All right. Shout um, out to Patreon. We got all the Patreon peeps. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna run down uh, the list real quick. Um, all right. Huge shout out to Jordan Morris, Charles Stackhouse, Justin McGillis, Julius Hoffman, Nate Mason, and Will Kissinger. All the new Patreons. Awesome, man. Y'all are all, Will, thank you, man. I, I was talking to Will the other day. I know Will. All Will, killed, Will killed a, Will uh, killed killed a, a hammer stud last year. Last year. Us, using Josh Driver's tactics from episode yep. 141. Literally, listen to episode on Monday. That Friday killed a freaking stud. I was on my honeymoon. when he, I was on the last day of my honeymoon, and he sent me that picture. Mm. I was like, "Woo!" <laughs> no, he killed a great buck last year. 14 point, man. Yeah. God, what a good deer. Yep. Um. But anyways. Anyways. Awesome. Yeah, thank all y'all for doing the Patreon. Um, I will say, plug for the Patreons here. All the Pat- We recorded episode 200 yesterday. We all, we recorded it way in advance because we had a go- good opportunity with some three of the best guests that we've had. Um, killers had a roundtable discussion. It was awesome. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I can't listen, wait to listen, drop that. Oh episode. my God, guys. It's, it's going to be, be so in November because that's when 200 is going to yep. happen. But yep. uh, the Patreons got uh they got a little bit of uh, early access to that where we reached out to our patreons asked for some questions for those people um and they got to write in their questions and everything so 
shout out to y'all. Got those some of the questions in. So yeah. So I got plug in the Patreon. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you guys listening. Again, make sure, um, you know, listen to the episode, share it with a buddy. Again, you know, we we appreciate y'all kind of sharing the episode word of mouth with some of your friends and family members, kind of growing the show. But uh, until next time, we'll see you back here next Monday. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast, a show where we sit down with outdoorsmen of the Ozark Mountains region to talk all things hunting and fishing. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts on everything from bear hunting, to fishing for smallmouth and trout, and discussing big questions like what happened to all the quail in the southeast. If you're enjoying this show, then I know you'll enjoy the Ozark Podcast. You can listen to the show on all podcasting platforms and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.